sun. It seems like only yesterday. You were just a child at play. Now you're all grown up and podcasting with your mom about Disney. <laughs> Once we listen to an old LP, now we watch on TV. The movie's brief, but when it's done, podcast on and on. <laughs> No wonder that song was nominated for an Academy Award. It's it's so obviously the best uh, song from this movie with the longest legacy. <laughs> the most remembered. Oh, boy. There there was another option. Yeah. Too late to be known as part the first. It should be known as part the worst. I know. I thought about that, too. I'll share my ideas. The one I was going to do before you said you had uh, an idea was I was just going to whistle, whistle stop. And then I was going to be like, no, no, the podcast was totally in there. <laughs> you just need to understand whistle language. <laughs> exactly. Like the like the last Jedi where uh, BB-8 is the one who says I have a bad feeling about this. Right, right. And the the other one similar to Pod the Worst was uh i you know you could do uh every podcast has its ups and downs sometimes the ups outnumber the downs but not in me mom mouse which i liked how well that scanned but i don't really want to be like <laughs> our podcast is all bad because <laughs> it's i don't feel it's accurate then you should try to figure out how to say especially in me mom mouse Oodle lolly, golly, podcasting. All right. And uh, with that, with your choice of like seven cold opens, one for every song in the movie, <laughs> let's start the show. Everybody and welcome to Me, Mom, and the Mouse, a podcast about the joy of watching cartoons with your family. We're watching every film in the Disney animated canon and talking about how it was made, what it means, and why we love it or don't. My name is Isaac Coleman, and I'm joined as always by my mother, Rue Coleman, and for the first time ever by my father, Christopher Coleman. Hello, both of you. Hello. Hello. Oodalali, <laughs> oodalali. Golly, what a podcast. And we do want to give a special shout out to our editor, Brad Murray at Oak Studios. Thanks for all the work that you do. Too late to be known as Brad the First. He's sure to be known as Brad the Best. Thank Yay. you for editing this show. This week on the program, we are continuing Disney's Bronze Era with 1973's Robin Hood, directed by Wolfgang Reitherman. Yep. Yep. Big fan of recycled animation, which you would know watching this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, you would. <laughs> you know, you might be able to guess. I'm just gonna say. <laughs> you might eagle-eyed viewers might might be shocked to see. I actually did while doing research for this movie see a lot of articles that were like, Can you believe these times Disney recycled animation? And it's like, I sure can. Yeah. <laughs> I sure can. <laughs> I saw one thing, though, that was like, 
it's actually harder to do the recycled animation than to just draw it from scratch. Right. And I was like, oh, oh whatever. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> right. Uh, I will actually talk about that exact quote. Yeah. OK, sure. <laughs> yeah, that's that is it true. Uh, spoiler alert. But we'll get to that in a moment. First, I, I want to ask first our, our special guest, my my father, Christopher Coleman, what does this movie mean to you? Why did we uh, assign you this episode <laughs> without asking you? We were like, we should have some of our family members on as guests and obviously dad will do the Robin Hood episode. Well, the thing is, I am holding right here in my hand for all of the podcast viewers to see um, <laughs> an actual vinyl LP that came out after the movie. This is what back in the dark days before home video, we had to watch. And the way you watched it is you put it on a record player that was roughly the size of a love seat <laughs> and you set it in the middle and you'd put this little arm with a needle in it onto the thing and listen to it scratch and pop. And the watching part for most records was just watching it go round and round and round. But for the Disney records, they came with a little book. I see, which he's also yeah. holding up. Good prop work for our podcast. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> this is in terrible condition. It has been well loved. This was something I listened to at least weekly through the years of my early childhood. I remember many, many fights with my sister <laughs> about who got to pick the record and who got to play the record. And also when it came time for the boring song, I remember mastering a unique skill, <laughs> which is incredibly important, which is when you tug the lever to pull the arm off of the surface of the record and very gently push it to physically advance it along and then carefully drop it so that you can fast forward through the entire boring or unwanted part of the record. This is a skill that requires nerves and precision and not getting caught doing this because this is how you scratch records. Well, if you don't do it right. <laughs> yes, unfortunately, you do have to learn, which involves a certain amount of trial and error. Plus, the fighting means that every record you listen to often as a child eventually develops its own unique pattern of scratches and skips. And my Robin Hood record is, of course, no exception. I know where all of the most important skips are. In fact, just recently... I received as a gift a new record player that has a different stylus, a different kind of arm attachment, and it's more forgiving, and it has altered some of my skips, and I don't like it. So there's one very important skip in particular. The most important skip of all is the skip that took Peter Ustinov's strangled gargling of Sheriff, I Make the Rules, and turned it into Sneef. I make the rules, and since I'm head mac, and that skip is broken with the new stylus, and I'm going to have to figure out how to fix this. You mean fixed? It's no, fixed. It's broken. Sneef, I make the rules. 
despite the fact that my brother and I and presumably mom have never heard it because it's the quirk of mm-hmm. a very specific of one record in the world. A precious, unique record <laughs> in the world. It is nonetheless a, a much, much referenced family joke and no even like no board game of villainous, no mention of Robin Hood uh, in any context is complete without someone yelling, Sneef, I make the rules. Sneef, I make the rules. <laughs> it's a very popular <laughs> phrase around allergy season, which in this house is all four yeah, of them. Right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> this house too. Oh boy. I didn't actually get to see the movie until I was 13 years old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I watched it on a laser disc. A laser disc is the same size as this LP, or closer to it. It's pre-compact disc. It's a non-compact laser disc is what I watched it on. And I was immediately disappointed. Because <laughs> here's the thing. I'd been listening to this since I was a kid. I had filled in all of the images with the help of a 12-page book and my imagination. And frankly, the copy-paste animation of the actual film with the lousy backgrounds just couldn't live up to what my brain was producing. Right. I mean, the the 12 page book that probably featured all 12 original frames in the film Robin. <laughs> I was going through it to double check and make sure that none of them were reused. But no, they are. They are unique <laughs> in the book. That would be ballsy. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. <laughs> The record is narrated by Roger Miller, of course, and it's a unique narration. It's not simply snippets from the movie, but it is uh, it's a little faster paced. Yeah, they actually had him come in and record extra narration just for the record. Right. The rest of the voices are from the movie or there's a couple of alternate takes that are used between Ustinov and terry thomas but it's a little faster paced it flows better obviously they had to fit it on a 33 and a third speed lp so they didn't have all of the time that you get in the movie but it uh kind of works better (laughs) (laughs) and uh and mom what does this movie mean to you i also had the storybook record as a child i do not still own it to hold it up as a prop My parents might still own it, but they're not sure because they haven't looked at their records in a long time. (laughs) (laughs) There are a ton of words and phrases from the record and in the movie, of course, that I did not understand what they were saying when I was a child. And I kind of some of them, I just kind of let it gloss over. Some of them I did a Mondegreen where I thought it was some other word. And when I watched the movie this week with you guys, I still felt like when those phrases would come up, I'd be like, oh, that's what it is. Right. (laughs) Even though I can't always remember what I used to think it was. Every time one of those comes up, I'm like, ah, this is what it really is. (laughs) And, and you know, it's true. I'm pretty sure that's how my record got some of its snatches, because I remember as a kid Mm -hmm. trying to parse that line and backing it up and backing it up and backing it up until eventually I just wrecked it. Yeah, because you don't know he's being choked. Right. You don't know he's being choked and he makes it silly. They they use a lot of silly voices. 
They don't always emphasize the syllable you'd expect when they're speaking. And he's being choked when he says sheriff. And so it's like, sheriff. I think, yeah. And so on a record, when you have no real good picture, what's going on? You don't know what he's saying. Right, I think he does say like Sharif or something. Yep. But it's again, it's Peter Ustinov, not the uh, and we love him. We're going to give him a lot of praise this episode. Mm, oh, not yeah. the easiest man to understand at the best of times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just listening to it, looking at the pictures, which are not just stills taken from the movie all the time. They're some of them are specifically drawn for the record book. Yep. A lot of the voices in this are are very cartoony and very exaggerated and mm-hmm. even more so when characters are doing characters face to face. I don't have nearly as interesting a story, so I'll go quick. But I mean, we own the clamshell. We watch it a lot. I've always loved this movie. We got the Blu-ray, continued to watch it a lot. We have Disney Plus. We continue to watch it a lot. <laughs> like I, I've always uh, enjoyed this movie a lot, mm-hmm. uh, and I really, really enjoyed rewatching it. Yeah, I think you know, like in general, people tend to think of this as, I mean, a very cheap movie, which it is, but like a much worse kind of a lesser Disney work. And I, I would say this is one of the better uh, Disney movies that we've seen so far mm-hmm. and certainly one of the best of the bronze era. I don't know if it's the best, at least for me. I mean, Winnie the Pooh is coming up and I like Great Mouse Detective a lot, but I think it's a it's a terrific little film, despite it's definitely got flaws as well, mainly <laughs> in the aforementioned cheapness. So, yeah, let's talk about the production of this movie. The 1970s were a pretty grim time for Disney animation. Yeah. Because, of course, Walt was dead, uh, you know, as we may have mentioned once or twice on the previous <laughs> episode. And uh, Roy Disney was was threatening to shut the studio down, but mm-hmm. he still had, you know, this was his brother's project. He had some fondness for it. It was so tied to the history of Disney. For so many people, Disney will always first and foremost be associated with animation even today. But the Aristocats, not a huge success. It did pretty well, but not like, oh, animated features that are incredibly expensive and time consuming (laughs) to make. They're totally worth it now. Yeah. In our time of financial strife. And then the year after Aristocats in 1971, Roy Disney died. And the people who stepped up in his place were Don Tatum, Don insanely spelled with two N's and card Walker, which sounds like a move that you do with card tricks. (laughs) I'm suddenly feeling uh, targeted here. It's hard to find much about Don Tatum and card Walker, which surprised me because obviously, you know, the people who ran the studios before the, the animation studios specifically before them, Walt and Roy Disney quite a bit written about them. After them, we have Eisner and Katzenberg, a lot written about them. I can't wait to talk about those two insane jerks. Uh, <laughs> and after that, we have Lassiter. Uh, also, obviously, a lot about him. Also kind of an insane jerk. And now we have Jennifer Lee. Now, of course, uh, the one of the directors of Frozen, a very important figure in Disney. Don Tatum and Card Walker like don't exist. They kept the seat warm. Yeah. <laughs> this is the thing about these guys. They weren't visionaries. They weren't 
heroes to the industry. They weren't their job was keeping the seat warm. Right. They weren't even interesting jerks like Eisner and Katzenberg, (laughs) who famously Katzenberg especially does not have an artistic bone in his body, but he's at (laughs) least interesting to write and read about (laughs) these guys. Not so much. I'd like to read, if I may, uh, D23, right, which is like the official Disney fan site has an article about Don Tatum. Mm-hmm. who was that I think is very telling. And this is when he became a Disney legend, which is like a, it's a made up title that Disney gives out. <laughs> they put his name on the stadium wall. It's fine. We, we get it. Something like that. He was he was inducted as a Disney legend in 1993. And I'm just going to read a little of this. For more than 25 years, Don Tatum served in senior executive roles with the Walt Disney Company. A low-key fellow who ran the show with an iron hand, Don worked with Roy O. Disney to complete the Herculean task of building Walt Disney World. He subsequently teamed with then-company president Card Walker to develop Epcot Center. As Disney's former chief executive officer, Don was particularly impressive in the way he conducted the annual stockholders meetings. (laughs) Former company vice chairman Roy E. Disney once recalled... I love to watch Don in action. He was an excellent communicator and deft in his ability to handle the myriad of questions posed by stockholders. If if my tombstone, if my obituary is going to say he was good in stockholder meetings, don't even bury me. Let the crows take me. My life has been thoroughly wasted. But the best thing anyone can say about me on an article that is like two layers deep of propaganda about how great I am, if the one thing somebody could come up with was man knew how to conduct a <laughs> shareholder meeting. <laughs> but let me say two things. Number one, that's what they needed. They needed somebody to keep all the pieces moving because when Walt and then Roy died, there were a lot of plates spinning and nobody really knew what the engine was anymore, what was going to keep these things going. So they needed somebody who was just steady, stable, and could keep things afloat. The second thing is Disney stockholder meetings used to be kind of infamous for the shenanigans that would go on because there were a lot of people who would buy like a single share of Disney stock so they could claim. And these were fans doing it. And then they got the authority to come to the stockholder meetings. So here we're trying to do a world-busting empire, and you got a whole bunch of people who afforded one share of Disney because they're fans, and they want to see things like, this stockholder meeting needs to talk about when you're going to re-release my favorite movie. Why can't we have more Haley Mills as a as a wonderful child? You know she's mm-hmm. grown up now, right? Yes, but we need her as a child. <laughs> so wrangling those shareholder meetings might have been more of a success than... It sounds like? Yeah. Right. And it's true that he and Walker were heavily involved in the Disney parks. I I admit park history is not my area of expertise, so to speak. But getting those things going was such an impossible task. It's amazing that either Disneyland or Epcot exists, let alone is a thing that's cool and fun and popular. Do you mean Disney World? Yes. Well, both, both. (laughs) (laughs) So you do have to, you know, give them some credit for being involved in that. But really, by all accounts at this time, the man who's really in charge of Disney animation 
is a guy who was not only directing all of their movies, but who had been producing several of them and now basically got to act with total authority. Wolfgang Reitherman. Mm hmm. Here's the thing, though. There, there's another name you have to bring up if you're going to talk about Robin Hood. You got to talk about Ken Anderson. Yes. And Ken Anderson, you guys have talked about him in in, in past episodes, yep. and you know, well deservedly so. He he deserves the the acclaim that he's gotten. But here's the the thing, though. All of a the sudden, these two boys are running things in the animation, and they're able to get away with stuff because no one else is paying attention. Right. For example, you guys have talked quite a bit about the Chanticleer concept, mm -hmm. the movie idea that they have been kicking around since the 1940s. And frankly, nobody could make a decent movie out of it. But they were really passionate about this idea. Yep. And it had been killed by Walt more than once. It had been killed by Roy more than once. It had been killed by execs more than once. But now, no one's really paying attention. And I like to kind of imagine how the pitch meeting went, because I'm pretty sure it was Ken Anderson who brought the idea up and said, look, I know how we can make Chanticleer. And I can imagine Retherman going, no, it's not happening. Seriously, we've tried it every possible way. It's not going to happen. No, no, no. But listen to me out. Chanticleer is based on the characters from Le Roman de Renard, Ken uh, obviously spoke French with a, a fine Parisian accent <laughs> and was able to talk about uh, Renard the Fox appropriately. <laughs> what if we take these characters? You can't make a movie out of Chanticleer. No one wants us to make a movie out of Chanticleer. No, no, no. But we tell people we're going to make a Robin Hood movie. Didn't Disney already do a live action Robin Hood? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was decades ago. No one remembers that. <laughs> we're going to tell them we're going to do a Robin Hood movie. So Robin Hood will be the Fox. Not the rooster? No, the rooster is going to be Alan Adale, the minstrel. You're going to make Chanticleer the minstrel and Robin Hood a fox. Right. So who are the rest of the merry men? We're going to cut them all out and we're going to replace them with a family of rabbits. <laughs> we're going to have little rabbit kids, except their best friend is a turtle. <laughs> Ken, have you been smoking the wacky weed again? Mm -hmm. No, no, no. Listen, this is a great idea. Where will we put Phil Harrison? Because we're contractually obligated to have Phil Harrison every movie we ever make from now to the end of time. Which is to say this one. This movie. <laughs> All right. Phil Harris can be Baloo. Baloo is not in the Robin Hood story. We'll shove him in. We'll call him something else. He can be Friar Tuck. You really think Baloo is going to be Friar Tuck? We're going to get calls from the Catholics. You know that. All right. Make him Little John. I don't care. He can be Will Scarlet. The important thing is... We can make Chanticleer if we tell everybody it's Robin Hood <laughs> and we'll pick each of the animals and we'll put them in the movie. And at the last minute, we'll change the name and nobody will have seen it coming. I'm pretty sure that's exactly how it happened. That's pretty much. Yeah, this this is well documented. It's it's barely a joke that Ken Anderson, who, yes, we have talked about an amazing character animator and art director, the main guy behind 101 Dalmatians, heavily involved with the Aristocats. Yep. And he had this Fox character that he loved. As you say, it started with uh, a 1930s attempt to make a Reynard the Fox movie. And yes, again, Chanticleer and various other places. He wanted to put him in cartoon segments in the live action Treasure Island. One stop you did not mention that I think is very, very important, which is a project that was dropped in the 1960s, which was a Western 
featuring talking animals. That was prior to Robin Hood, his last attempt to get the fox character in something. Yeah. And there is a lot of that Western DNA in this movie down to several of the characters having Southern accents. And something I didn't realize, the Sheriff of Nottingham was, you know, previously designed and some animation was done. And of course, again, reuse that for this Western movie. That's why he has the star on his costume. They added puffy <laughs> sleeves to the Western costume. <laughs> and we're like, that's now instead of being the sheriff of some cowboy town, he's the sheriff of Nottingham. Right. And they got a bunch of actors to do voices who had had involvement with Westerns. The Sean Declair concept, right, goes all the way back to Snow White. It was one of the earliest ideas they proposed, and it got shot down over and over and over again. Ken Anderson, I think he picked it up in 1960 or thereabouts with Mark Davis. They were looking for something to do, and they were going through the vaults, and they found all this old concept art because, of course, Disney doesn't throw anything away. Yep. And they, they thought this would be a great idea, and they pitched it, and they pitched it, and they pitched it, and they tweaked it, and they converted it. And the basic problem is what they were really trying to do is they were trying to do a play by Edmund Rostand where they wanted to take his Chanticleer and make a movie out of it. The problem is that doesn't translate well to an animated family movie right. because Chanticleer is not real friendly. Let's put it that way. He's kind of a jerk. Mm -hmm. And so basically you have an unlovable main character and he's trying to Basically be the cock of the walk, uh, literally, the rooster that kind of rules over the whole farm. Mm -hmm. And so they kept trying to find how can we balance this out and make it interesting. So Ken Anderson goes, hey, there's this fox character that I've got. Let's bring him in. What Ken Anderson really literally wrote was, as director of story and character concepts, I knew right off that sly Robin Hood must be a fox. Okay. Yeah, because he's stealing from Reynard the fox. Yeah. Right. In their Chanticleer concepts, the fox was always the villain. Right. And one of the things Disney shot down with the Reynard the fox concept is the fact that Reynard was a thief. And we can't have a thief as a main character, especially in the days of the Hayes Code, which we talked about last week. Mm -hmm. But with Robin Hood, the thief is a good guy thief. He's a gentleman thief. And also we're post Hayes Code. So that's not even as much of a concern anymore. And also, Walt's deep in the cold, cold ground. So who cares what he thinks other than every exec at Disney, which, you know. Right. So we'll just, you know, it's Robin Hood. It's OK. It's not what we were trying to do before. Right. <laughs> Anderson wanted to put it in the Deep South. Yes. He wanted to do all kinds of really, really, frankly, bad ideas. <laughs> so glad he was overruled on that. But the main thing is he finally got to make the movie. Yep. Right. And then Reitherman took it away from him and said, great, we love your ideas. Hey, Don. And he called out to a young guy named Don Bluth and said, we're going to fix a lot of this, aren't we? Reitherman changed so much of Anderson's stuff. First of all, you know, Anderson wants to do really advanced animation. And Reitherman's like, they have given us as little money as they can possibly give us. Right. Reitherman himself, like already... You know, a lot of the movies we've talked about with him have been some of the movies that reuse stuff the most. He was pretty not shy about it. But with this one, he he really 
the budget limitations on this were pretty crazy. And, mm -hmm. and that is a distinction I want to make here because I think it's important. A lot of people, when they talk about this movie, talk about it being very lazy. Yeah, I don't. As we go through it, I'll explain why I don't think this is a lazy movie. I think this is a cheap movie. Mm, I think that makes sense. these animators are doing what they can with six dollars. <laughs> right. You have an allowance of this many cells. Yes. If you need more than this many cells, you're just going to have to reuse them. If you need more than this many cells, we will shut down your studio for your impudence. <laughs> like that is absolutely the axe hanging over the head of this movie. Yeah. You may only have this many colors in your paint box. <laughs> right. So, I mean, a lot of the people working on it, Anderson especially, blame Reitherman for how it turned out. There may be some truth to that, but I think you do also have to take into account the conditions at the time, at the least. And Anderson at one point said that when he saw the movie and he saw what they did to his characters, he actually cried about it. Yes. But here's the problem. It wasn't going to get made the other way. Yeah. <laughs> one of Anderson's brilliant ideas was to make the sheriff of Nottingham a goat. Right. He's the butt of all the jokes. Make him a goat. They didn't do it. The reason they didn't do it, as you said, they had the footage of a wolf. They could reuse that. Plus, it makes Robin Hood look like more of a hero if he's actually having to defeat actual villains who are, you know, somewhat competent and maybe scary as opposed to and predator animals. Yeah. Yeah. But that was why Anderson wanted to do a goat was because he wanted to get away from some of the more obvious uh, animal iconography. He was like, why can't a goat be a villain? You know, why does it always have to be a wolf or whatever? And then they're like, yeah, here's the thing. It's a wolf. <laughs> right. Part of the thing is it looks lazy. Mm -hmm. It's not lazy. It's cheap, but it looks lazy. Back in the day, we kind of had two standards for animation, right? At the one end, you have Disney. You expect Disney to be beautiful, to be high quality, to be high frame rate, looks like a movie. And at the other hand, you had Hanna-Barbera. Hanna-Barbera always had at least one long chase scene because they could use the same four frames over and over for as long as they want and just scoot a single piece of background past over and over. Yogi Bear getting chased with his picnic basket always runs past the same rock over and over and over. That's the way it goes. It's a way to fill time without having to do expensive animation. <laughs> this is the way we judged this, right? This is the way that I grew up thinking about. It. You got Disney on one hand, you got Hanna-Barbera on the other. Now, that's not fair to Hanna-Barbera, but that's the way we perceived it. So this movie, to a lot of people, looks like it's made lazy. It looks like Hanna-Barbera animation. It looks like it's made on the cheap. It was made on the cheap. But what it has that helps overcome that is it has some of the best voice actors yeah. they could possibly have gotten for these roles. Before we hop over to the casting, I do want to say real quick on the animation side of things as well. And I think this movie does have a lot of good character animations, some of which is I feel like that's where they put the most original work is in the characters, especially to complement these great performances. There's a really great resource that I can't read all really, I don't think I'll read any of because it's so long. But in his own words, Ken Anderson on Disney's Robin Hood from Cartoon Research 
It's a really great article that has a lot of quotes from Ken Anderson talking about making this movie and working on Disney in general. And what he did really get, again, he's this great character animator, is how to bring character out of these animals. Mm -hmm. And reading, again, other reviews of this movie, things other people have said about it, one complaint is like, oh, how is Maid Marian a nephew to... Prince John and Richard, who are lions. And that would be a niece niece. Sorry. <laughs> why? And, uh, you know, why? Why would Prince John be such a scraggly lion or whatever? And reading his quotes, he talks a lot about how the reality of the thing is totally unimportant. Right. It's all about the personality you can get out of an animal and out of a particular type of animal. And yes, you know, there is the story that he cried when he saw how they changed his characters and it feels like an extreme reaction. But at the same time, Ken Anderson absolutely was an artist and I can he felt very strongly about it. And that is a perspective that I feel is somewhat missing today when from Disney, when not only do we have the Delarms, but the CGI movies are so often trying to be photorealistic or, you know, look how much we can simulate reality. Yeah. Not to say that the modern movies have no merit, especially the animated ones. But it's a very different way of thinking that I find very, very refreshing. This is where storytelling is so important. And the characters are so very, very important because they have to be distinguished. They have to be standout. Now, one thing I was going to say was that they did get some great voice actors, but they actually spent too long looking for their lead yes in robin hood they spent so much time trying to find the right actor to do robin hood they actually blew a big chunk of their budget and had to rush through some of the rest of the work <laughs> and that we're gonna have to blame ritherman for but ken anderson to your point understood we have got to make characters out of these things one of the things that you see in 101 dalmatians is even though they're xeroxing the puppies they are still have character in the main set of puppies yeah Right. And that's what makes them stand out. That's what makes them stand apart. You can actually feel that there's something unique about these characters. This Robin Hood, however it came about, whatever the, the shenanigans they went through to actually get it made, these characters being defined both in their art style, in their movements, in their voices, all of these things come together to make a truly special combination for the storytelling that is what is so important about about this movie the movies that don't manage that last episode you talked about the aristocats yeah can you tell the kittens apart only by the most obvious of like their different colors right not not nearly as much by personality and certainly not by performance right and it's very different from some of the like waltz a special fascination which you see mainly in Bambi and Sleeping Beauty, was the opposite of let's have gorgeous backgrounds, let's make it look like a painting. Mm -hmm. Anderson, in his words, is not interested in making paintings, he's interested in making caricatures. Yeah. Right. And the reality is when we watch animation, that's what we want. I don't want photorealistic animation. I don't want animation that I can't tell the difference between that and live action. I'm not interested in that. That's not the point of animation. I want animation to figure out how to do animation things. Into the Spider-Verse, one of the greatest animated movies ever, possibly one of the greatest movies, period, 
uh, in their animation, they did things like simulate the dots that you would get in the old printing processes that were used to color comics. Why? Because they wanted it to look different. They want it to feel different. The little sound effect balloons that they use so effectively in that. Why? Because they want it to look like a comic. They want it to look different. It doesn't need to look like live action, real people, live action, and anthropomorphic animals. As for the cast of this movie, Robin Hood. So as you say, a lot of time spent to find Robin Hood. I did not know before doing the research here, their original choice who was even cast and started doing recording was Tommy Steele. Yeah, I thought that was really funny, too. Tommy Steele, of course, was uh, in English, though he often affected an Irish accent. <laughs> Entertainer and teen heartthrob and musician who was in several Disney movies before this one, the, the big hit that he was in, in a movie I still like, despite its uh, very... Unfortunate politics, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. The Happiest Millionaire was like right before the or yeah, fairly before this. I guess it was 67 mm -hmm. right before when they started working on this. And, you know, he was such a star and such a hit in that that he felt like an obvious hit. And again, he's English and this is a movie set in England, but they felt that he couldn't sound heroic enough, which <laughs> I can kind of hear as as a fan of Tommy Steele. Yeah. He's a lovable goof. That's that's really his niche, especially in the Disney movies. He's he's the funny side character. He's not the protagonist. And that's that's one of the most interesting things about it, because the star of Robin Hood, the movie, isn't really Robin Hood, the character. No. You know, for one thing, you've got the narrator who is pushing most much of the action along, in this case, voiced by Roger Miller. But really, the star of the movie is Peter Ustinov. <laughs> yes. And let's talk about Peter Ustinov in just a moment. But let's start by thinking Tommy Steele opposite Peter Ustinov. <laughs> what a horrible muddle that would be. <laughs> they would both be going too big. Correct. And Robin Hood goes pretty big in this movie, but yeah. he needs to be smaller than... Really, everyone else, especially he's got Little John on one side and he's got Prince John on the other. Mm -hmm. By underplaying a little bit, Brian Bedford really does bring out the fundamental strength of this character. Yeah, I think he does a great job. And I don't know that they could have gotten Tommy Steele to underplay. I will say also that he was in the same class at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art as Alan Bates, Peter O'Toole, and the greatest of all time, the absolute goat, Albert freaking Finney. <laughs> so what a class that must have been. Right? The greatest college drama department of all time. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. In 2009, Bedford starred in The Importance of Being Earnest. This was his 27th season of acting at the Stratford Shakespeare Festival in Canada. But for a zillion dollars, can you guess who he played in The Importance of Being Earnest? I saw this, unfortunately. So, Mom. Um, did he play the vicar? I guess. I don't know. He played Lady Bracknell. Oh, no, I wouldn't have guessed. <laughs> I was trying to think of the least likely male character. I didn't realize he played a female character. He played the Lady Bracknell in 2009, which I love it. He's playing a woman in this, too, for a bit. It's and, true. And does, you know... <laughs> 
It's he's, true. It's he's true. got a good, funny old lady voice, no doubt. I, I bet it was great. He did even back then. <laughs> Oodle lolly, oodle lolly. <laughs> Catch the dope with your aeroscope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that some of that stuff right there. When I first listened to that as a kid, I was like, I don't know what they're saying. <laughs> I did I did want to say that uh when you were talking about like uh why Tommy Steele as a goofier kind of side character type actor wouldn't have been good in the lead role, I think about that with Phil Harris. Obviously, we don't need to talk about Phil Harris again, like his background, but you know, we, we talked about in the last movie, he's so miscast mm-hmm. as the lead. That's not where he should be. And this movie, as much as my goodness, yes, he's just playing Baloo again. <laughs> it's a little ridiculous, <laughs> but they I feel like this movie does understand that what's fun about Baloo is that he is not the main character. He is a side character yeah. who is often trying to derail the plot. And in this they do the right thing with Phil Harris, where they make him the funny sidekick. Mm-hmm. That's where you want him to be. Even the the great Phil Harris, you know, who gave at least one of the best Disney voice performances ever, couldn't do the lead role thing because that's not where he goes yeah. in, a, in a Disney ensemble. And so I feel like that's analogous to what you were saying about Tommy Steele. I like Phil Harris so much more in this movie mm-hmm. than in the previous one. It does help that he has better material, of course. Yeah, not a little bit. This is a scene I think Tommy Steele could have done very well. Tommy Steele as the fortune teller in disguise, no problem. Yes. But being able to transfer from that to the later performances, the more serious, being able to shift back and forth, I don't know. I think he would have been too over the top. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Tommy Steele would have knocked it out of the park and it would have been a better movie. I don't know. I just, I love Bedford's performance. I think it's perfectly balanced. The genuine power that Bedford brings to Marion, my darling, I love you more than life itself. Yeah, (laughs) that's that's something special. Yeah. But let's stop not talking about Peter Ustinov. (laughs) Let us talk about Peter Ustinov. And in this household, we love us some Peter Ustinov. It's true. Of course. I do like that he was cast because they had enjoyed him so much on Blackbeard's Ghost. No, no, no. I do have to correct this just slightly. (laughs) The reason he was cast in this is because Walt said that he enjoyed him on Blackbeard's Ghost during one of his last visits to the studio. (laughs) And as much as Peter Ustinov is the perfect fit for this role, it is so indicative of the studio (laughs) at the time that they were like, before he died, Walt said he liked Peter Ustinov. We have to get him in here. Yeah, it's so totally desperate. The, The what would Walt do that we'll see through this whole era? But of course, I mean, he's he is perfect casting for this. That is true. And since we talked about people who didn't get cast as uh, Robin himself, we ought to talk about who didn't get to play the king. A man who truly believed he should have had the role, who was very upset about not having the role and took it quite personally, was, of course, King Louis himself, Louis Prima. Louis Prima was so upset about being left out of this movie that he did possibly the most insane thing I have ever heard of in Hollywood. (laughs) Louis Prima paid himself to make a record featuring songs from Robin Hood 
about Robin Hood, songs he would have written for the movie if he'd been allowed to write music for the movie. (laughs) He made this record and then sold it to Disneyland Records for pretty much nothing and said, here, release this because your movie would have been better if I had been in it. (laughs) That is a lovely story. And if you don't love Louis Prima for that, I don't know. <laughs> I I had to read that over and over again to be like, so wait, he was mad at Disney, so he spent a ton of his own money and gave them a product a to sell. A ton <laughs> of <laughs> money. A ton of money. <laughs> Not just a couple of bucks. And I guess he showed them. <laughs> Question mark. Question mark indeed. So since we're talking about watching movies with family, I have to give a shout out to... My in-laws, your grandparents, who are truly Disney people, especially your grandmother, who I'm pretty sure if you were to cut her open and check every one of her internal organs is stamped Disney and all of her blood cells have mouse ears. She got to go see Robin Hood in the theater as a kid. (laughs) I'm sure. I'm sure she did. But the only time I've ever surprised her about Disney was when I played for her. Louis Prima's Robin Hood album. And she's like, what is this? (laughs) This is one of my favorite stories. I love this story about Louis Prima and the album. You will learn your lesson, boys. And they did. They never cast him in another another Disney movie ever. (laughs) I know. He wasn't in the Aristocats either, although maybe he was like dodged a bullet thing. Yeah. (laughs) But apparently he really thought he should have been in Robin Hood. For whatever reason, he loved Robin Hood. I know. And it's weird because I'm like, you could have gotten Louis Prima in Aristocats. (laughs) He would have fit better in Aristocats. I don't think he would have fit in this one. So I have a question for you, Dad, since uh, clearly, you know, you've done a a lot of research on the cast. Do you know why Roger Miller is in this movie? Because I could not find out much about it. I couldn't find out, like, who reached out to him for this movie, why he's doing it exactly. Obviously, he also writes three original songs and really cared about it. And several of these songs became big hits. They still get covered today. Here's Mm -hmm. what you need to know. And I'm sorry if this is going to disappoint you. Roger Miller, first of all, my mom used to sing Roger Miller songs to me. And she'd get halfway into them before she suddenly realized, you know, this may not be a real appropriate song to teach my six-year-old, seven-year-old son. But here's the thing about Roger Miller. He was a songwriter, and he was incredibly cheap. (laughs) As a songwriter, he was quite inexpensive. He had an appeal in the United States. He had written the song, England Swings which was kind of an American countrified response to the British invasion. The Brits did not take kindly to it, by the way. The British youths found it very patronizing and kind of insulting. And every time you get surprised about how the Brits don't get angry at Dick Van Dyke for what he did to their accent, they were busy being angry at Roger Miller is pretty much what you should <laughs> what you should read into this. Um, however, as a songwriter, he was pretty cheap. He was very prolific. Um, he stole from himself. Um, you probably wouldn't recognize England Swings if you heard it, but you would recognize Oodalali, which straight up steals from that song in its total musical structure. So basically, that was it. They needed somebody to come in. They wanted it to sound different 
They didn't want it to sound exactly like every other movie. They had been thinking about doing a Western or a Deep South, so they wanted a Southern, countrified feel to it. So they were looking for somebody who could bridge that gap between a country sound and a rock sound and still have some fun, memorable songs, and they didn't have a huge budget. Yeah. I mean, in my opinion, Roger Miller and George Bruns are really the two people who elevate this movie the most. Of course, we've talked about the animation. We've talked about the cast. Many people put good work into this movie, but I I think it's the music that sells so much when the animation falls short. And let's also remember... You know, George Bruns, who also stole from himself on the regular. Oh, you'd think. <laughs> this is probably his best version of his only soundtrack. <laughs> I I definitely, this is my favorite Bruns score, in part because, yeah, it reuses a lot, but it doesn't reuse as much as some of the others. Yeah, I agree with that. But it uses it better. It fits better. Some of the Some of the moments that you hear like the musical bit that goes in the jailbreak scene, which is also horribly inappropriately used in uh, the Aristocats. Oh, yes. In a scene where it truly does not fit. This is one where you can truly see the soundtrack and the score being crafted into the movie. And like you said, telling that story, doing the work that the animation isn't doing. Other people in the cast, we should talk about Terry Thomas. He is every American person's conception of a British person. Slightly slimy. Of a slightly sketchy, slightly not to be trusted British person. Right. That's that's how I like to describe him to people who don't know who Terry Thomas is, because if you look him up, you're like, oh, this is like every cartoon of a British person is is making fun of this specific guy (laughs) and his uh, one third inch <laughs> gap between his two front teeth. The the tooth gap that made him a star, honestly. Dustin Hoffman used Terry Thomas as his model for Hook. Oh, yes. That I could believe. Because he is. He is that American ideal of the untrustworthy, slimy, mm-hmm. sketchy Brit. And he is perfect as yes. his. He is yes. perfect as his. He is the perfect character to pair with Prince John. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because Prince John needs somebody to interact with. He has to have somebody he can be ranting to. Otherwise, why did you get Peter Yostinov? You just let him talk to himself the entire time. (laughs) Oh, it would be no good. Sir Hiss was one of the latest additions to the characters. And what would this movie be without him? And Terry Thomas, you know, we've been talking about the stuff he inspired in his own right. I believe a truly brilliant comedian one of my favorite movies that i believe i've referenced before it's a mad 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 world he has a great role in that and in my opinion is one of the people who steals the show which is impressive to me because obviously that movie is all about let's get the best comedians all in one place so you know the people like him and jonathan winters who managed to rise above that level of excellence that's always impressive to me Mad, it's a mad, 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 mad world is full of celebrities and he still manages to steal every scene he's in from some people who were pretty good scene stealers themselves. Yes. And he steals scenes in this one without stepping on anybody else. Exactly. That's in both this and mad, 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 mad world. He's so good at being the foil who's secretly funny because a straight man is very hard a lot of modern comedy, I think, gets the straight man wrong of having it be like 
dour and not funny. The straight man needs to be as funny as the funny man. He just needs not to have the punchlines. Yeah, that's very true here. Peter Ustinov can be the big, ridiculous character you remember. And Sir Hiss just takes it like he, right. whether he's literally getting abused or just verbally abused. He just silly serpent. Yes, <laughs> exactly. He is perfect because he helps bring a certain real spirit to the story. Prince John is a loony. Clearly, he can't have achieved this on his own. Mm-hmm. So to have Sir Hiss be the Eminence Grise, the, the power behind the throne usurping, to trick King Richard, it, it gives you something that you can suspend your disbelief on. Okay, I can believe this. But he's also at the same time the kind of character that you go, and yet this isn't somebody who could steal the throne for himself. Right. This is somebody who can be the power behind the throne only by getting somebody else who's a little dumber than he is to be the power on the throne. (laughs) He has to play low status to one of the lowest status characters in a Disney movie. Absolutely. And he does it so well. He is one of my favorite characters in any form of, of media because of how well he does this. And... You know, the funny thing is, funny, sad, really, um, he had been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease a couple years before this movie was made. And at first he tried to keep it on the lowdown. He didn't want anybody to know about it because he was afraid it would impact his ability to get work. The problem is when he didn't tell anybody he was sick and he'd show up and he wouldn't be able to stand and he'd have the shakes and he'd be stooped over and, and walking funny, they assumed he was a drunk which is even worse. So finally, he had to confess what was up. And after that, he was only able to get cameo parts. This role was incredibly important to him because he needed the money. This was a paycheck performance. In order to cover his medical bills, he had to get a good paycheck. And that's why he did this movie. And yet, at no point does his performance feel like he's phoning it in or he's just playing for the money and, you know, give me the check and I'm going home as soon as I can. You wouldn't believe he's sick to listen to him, even though he apparently was was quite ill. And eventually he did die in poverty and was only being helped out by the actors union. So that's that's the sad side of it. But I think it's important to recognize these were actors. These were good actors who were giving good performances, who were not just goofing off or taking it light or, you know, I'm screwing around because I'm getting a paycheck from, from Disney, so I might as well show up and get the money. Right. Again, the the Shrek thing, not to jump ahead on Katzenberg, but one of Katzenberg's big things we're going to talk about, especially in Oliver and Company, was let's get big name celebrities because their names will sell the movie and because Jeff Katzenberg personally wanted to be friends with big celebrities. And this is not that kind of performance. This is not a Shrek performance. This is not an Oliver and Company performance. I don't feel like it's even a Jungle Book performance where they got Louis Prima and Phil Harris to just play themselves. I mean, yes, Phil Harris is basically just playing himself, but the other people they got for this one are not. They are putting in the work to play their characters. Right. Terry Thomas isn't playing his usual role exactly. Neither is Peter Ustinov, really. I mean, he d- he did do some villain roles, 
But he wasn't it's not like he was known for being this kind of person. I mean, in Blackbeard's Ghost, again, his the big Disney hit before this. He's not playing this at all. He's playing much more high status. If Hiss had had a great big handlebar mustache and a cigarette holder, you know, <laughs> maybe you could claim that he was being a, a Terry Thomas ripoff. But he's it is such a powerful performance. It is such a in a small part, but it's an important part. It is it is the epitome of there are no small roles. You know, the role of Sir Hiss is, in my opinion, as important to this film as Little John or Friar Tuck. Despite the fact he's not in the book, you know. <laughs> yes. Well, a lot of these characters aren't. So let's get back and talk to talk about the character that we keep dancing around. Peter Ustinov. Peter Ustinov, of course, a most remarkable character in his own right. Continuously stunned that nobody has made the Peter Ustinov biopic. My firm belief is because there's absolutely nobody who could play Peter Ustinov except Peter Ustinov. Yeah, <laughs> probably quite a bit of truth to that. You know, he, he won many awards during his life. He was a respected philanthropist. He was a world changer. Um, he tried to be a spy during World War II. Uh, he went to British Secret Service and said, hey, I've got a lot of connections with the Russian emigres. These people would love to be spies and help you spy on Hitler's ally, the Soviet Union. You know, we can we can use this. They turned him down because, you know an actor. He had all of this background and all this experience. And the reason you can't talk about a standard Peter Ustinov role is there wasn't one. He would just chameleon to whatever he was feeling that role deserved. You know, compare, because obviously you should compare this to his performance in Blackbeard's Ghost. It's a totally different character. Blackbeard's ghost, you never, ever doubt, despite the fact that he's insubstantial, you never, ever doubt this is clearly somebody who understands power, who understands strength, who understands how to use it. The same actor in Prince John is a character who desperately wants to be powerful, who desperately wants to be liked, who desperately wants to be the king. And yet, even when he's usurping the crown, he still calls himself Prince John. He's still the mama's boy. And it's so funny because Peter Ustinov has such a distinctive look and the most distinctive voice. You would think he'd be one of these guys who could only play one character. You know, somebody more like, not to speak disrespectfully, but Pat Buttram, our sheriff of Nottingham here, who we talked about last week, who, you know, had that voice and always played to that voice and knew how to use that voice very well. Incredibly funny in his own right. Quite good in this movie. But yeah, Ustinov, I mean, the fact that he played Hercule Poirot, like, right. and Prince John in this, but he could be, you know, cool, super smart. Nero and Quo Vadis. Yes. I mean, the, the roles he's played. We watched a movie where he was the romantic lead. <laughs> But he was. I was just like, would you like to do smooching with me? <laughs> just I can't. I have a I have no use to know if I can't do it at all. It was a really good movie. <laughs> but it, we, we, we read what it was. And we were like, OK, going to have to see this to believe it. As silly as that sounds. It was a really good movie. I'm sure and it was a really good performance. We've got a few more of our. I think of them as our old standards actors coming back um, with Barbara Luddy being several of the small roles in this one. 
Yeah, I totally forgot that Barbara Luddy is in this. But yeah. when you hear the church mouse wife, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah that is Barbara Luddy. <laughs> sometimes she's called Mother Mouse and sometimes she's called Little Sister. I mean, you know, if you're looking at credit stuff, because she's not in the credits. But she also does the Mother Rabbit. Yep. And a lot of other people we've talked about before. And Jay Pat O'Malley. Yes, Jay Pat O'Malley. As Otto. Candido. Yes, <laughs> the captain of the guard. Captain Crocodile. Carol Shelley back as Lady Cluck. Yes, all of this. <laughs> all of this stuff, all the Disney ringers. We love to see them. Many of them in, in their last uh, performance. This is the end of, I think, the, the kind of the last remnants of the Silver Era in a lot of ways. Like, this is George Brun's last score. There's a lot of these actors' last appearances. Yeah, so maybe this one should be the last gasp of the silver era as opposed to the second in the bronze era. But you can't really say the Aristocats is the silver era. No, and again, <laughs> the bronze era is usually defined as post-Walt pre-Renaissance. I know, so, I know, I yeah, know. Yeah, it's, it's a hodgepodge. It's, it's not based on how the movie... Yeah. Yeah. Mom did mention earlier the claim that is uh, presented as fact on Wikipedia, which is why you shouldn't use Wikipedia as a source, which is that Wolfgang Reitherman favored using recycled animation, especially in this, because he wanted something that was guaranteed to be good. So using old animation that was already good was better. And it was actually more expensive and time consuming to recycle animation. This is sourced to a single medium article written by a person who identifies as Geek Dad, who claims to have talked to one of the Disney animators. On the other end of that, we have Wolfgang Reitherman, who said that he did this yeah. because it was cheap and they had no budget. So you can choose who to believe there. Yeah, yeah. Here's the thing about the recycled animation on this one, though, that I think has to be acknowledged, right? Because things had changed by 1970 for the Disney Corporation. And one of the things that had changed was television. Okay. So one of the things about this movie, the idea was um, it can be shown on television and on a television from even the best color television from the early seventies, you're not going to see it that much, but unlike some movies really when we rewatched it this time, having gone through all of the other movies with you guys, um, having watched them and having rewatched some of these quite recently, you can start spotting things. The scene in the woods where Maid Marian is dancing and you look at it and you go, they have straight up copied this out of Snow White. They brought in these two pigs who are clearly two of the dwarfs with pig heads. Oh, yeah. And it's all of the exact same movements. You can spot it because you've seen it. But if you hadn't seen it, it wouldn't have stood out. And if you hadn't been watching Snow White just a few short weeks ago, it wouldn't be as obvious. Unlike in the Aristocats, where sometimes you feel like it's deja vu all over, most of this movie, when it reuses uh, the scenes it tends to kind of slip by. There are some very obvious exceptions, not the least of which. And the one I always remember, I, I loved this movie before I ever saw this movie. I loved the story before I ever saw it. I loved Peter Ustinov. I, I did my best to learn how to say every one of his lines from the record exactly the way he did. 
But when I first watched it, one of the first scenes that I saw is the scene where the carriage is walking through. And this is a scene that by and large suffers on a record because all of the sight gags are missing. But when I watched it and you can tell that the rhinos are just exact photostatic copies of each other, it's disappointing. It's kind of frustrating and it's a little sad to see it because you're like, that looks bad. However, having said that, acknowledging that, there are other moments where you can tell they have really spent the money, right? They truly captured Prince John's movements. He really has a unique way of expressing himself. I am making the hand gestures here so that the people watching the (laughs) podcast can see the hand gestures. But if you've seen the movie, you know the gestures I'm talking about. You can see the way he's moving as he holds up his claws and yells, taxes, ah, ah, taxes, beautiful, lovely taxes. Ah, ah, ah." And they, they, they do his mouth movements, too. All of his mouth movements are extremely distinct. I think that the story of this movie, the energy of the actors, and it just is so that part is so good it tends to make you miss the recycled animation if you're not looking for it again because we've been watching all these previous movies it's easier to spot it because we've been reading you know when reading about snow white it talks about how these scenes are recycled in these other movies whatever you know right so we've been hearing reading the background of all these other movies that talks about stuff getting recycled even in movies we haven't watched yet So I knew it was coming. So it's more easier for us to see. But if you're just watching the movie and go in with the people, it's not as obvious. And I even thinking about it, I'm going, I can't remember what certain backgrounds look like in certain scenes because they're so basic, but they're not important. What the people are doing is so, you know, crazy and big. It doesn't matter. Very much so. Ener- Last week I said, like, energy is the word. And I was talking about how that movie had no energy. This this movie has enough energy for both of them. <laughs> and yeah, I actually think watching this movie with all the other Disney films, even though it highlights the reuse of animation, also actually makes it, it helped me appreciate this movie more, partially because when you watch them all, you realize they've always been reusing animation. Right. Like other than maybe Sleeping Beauty, <laughs> this is all over. This one has only slightly more than 101 Dalmatians, which is <laughs> yeah. egregious. But, you know, Ken Anderson's masterpiece, he would say. And yet. So that's part of it. But the other thing is, like, we've been through the wartime era. Melody Time is a movie that truly had no impetus other than let's make money. Nobody working on Melody Time cared about it or liked it at all. And in retrospect, they were all quite upfront about this. Robin Hood is not like that. And that's why I say it's cheap rather than lazy, because we have seen the lazy Disney movies and this is absolutely not that. Even though Ken Anderson got shoved aside, he had such passion for these characters. And it bled over to the rest of the people making the movie. They all felt these this this passion. You can tell this is truly something. And I I suspect, joking aside, I believe they were probably trying to prove that long form animated features were still a viable art form 
and they didn't want to see the animated studio getting killed or relegated to shorts that would go before the, the live action movies. They wanted to prove what they could do, and they did it in a totally different way that had not been tried before, which is we're not making paintings, right? We're, we're not making paintings. And it works so much better than, than some of the other movies because their passion shows. And even some of the weird decisions, like having Roger Miller play the English minstrel, singing country songs for an English film, country-ish, they work. It totally, totally, totally works. Getting rid of all of the merry men, fine. You never notice the lack. Although, find me another Robin Hood movie that has so few merry men. Right. I, I dare right. you. you. You can't do it. Right, which was apparently... Uh one of Wolfgang Reitherman's editions, Anderson, I think, uh, and, and some of the others, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson wanted to have more of the Merry Men, but Reitherman wanted to do a buddy picture and specifically cited, according to multiple sources, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid uh, with Robin Hood and Lil Jon, which is not really the relationship that's here, I think. But it does show, again, that the Western DNA is all over this movie. Absolutely. He wanted to make a Western, but they had Robin Hood and the idea of putting Robin Hood in the Old West just didn't really seem to appeal to anybody, especially not at at that particular time. I mean, some of the best Westerns aren't set in the Old West. You know, some of the very best Westerns are in space. (laughs) The whole concept of the neo-Western and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid itself is a very unusual Western. Right. Even though it's seen as prototypical for so much now like it's it's a western about how the west is gone right but they also had uh, a few themes if i may jump to talking about some of the themes of the movie this is very definitely a kids movie right oh, yeah. it is not a deep philosophical um but it does have some themes that i'm i'm pretty sure uncle walt might not have let slide uh it is very much not on the side of the wealthy and powerful which uh, Walt Disney, being both wealthy and powerful, might not have approved of. It is very much about helping each other. And the hero is the one who does the most to help everyone else, you know, to help the community. You know, part of that is the, the Robin Hood myth as it has existed in the 20th century. If you go back into some of the older stories, they're not quite that pure, noble, virtuous, upright, Boy Scoutish, but that's okay. There were people who, who thought it was kind of meaningless and kind of, you know, meh. But you have a movie where Friar Tuck actually gets to quote, Friar Tuck, the badger, gets to actually quote the Bible, and where the villain is a tax collector uh, who is leeching the poor people dry. Right. Which, to be fair, Walt, Walt might have liked that. I was thinking about how this movie's politics in a modern context, which, you know, of course, is not necessarily how it should be judged. But it is interesting in that sense of like rich people are bad and also taxes. Right. But of course, I understand what they're what they're saying. Right. Here's where you have this movie that that kind of points out, you know, maybe. Maybe community is important. Maybe we need to take care of each other. Maybe we need to be helping people out. Maybe we need not to be stealing everything. And that was something that Disney's animators felt a lot more strongly about uh, and frequently in opposition to uh, Uncle Walt himself. 
part of that does come from one of their biggest inspirations for this movie. They I read about they did not read any of the literary sources for Robin Hood. They watched Robin Hood movies, and the one they watched the most was the 1938 The Adventures of Robin Hood starring Errol Flynn, which was, among other things, it's a you know, it's a definitely a solid movie in its own right. But it was created in part to sneak in a very anti-Nazi pro-American intervention film past censors who had strictly forbidden Hollywood to do that. <laughs> so I think that is part of where that DNA comes from. Right, right. In, in that movie, the sheriff of Nottingham and his red and black and very Germanic <laughs> heavy symbolism, using that as your inspiration, that's going to bleed down. Obviously, interestingly, they didn't use Robin Hood and his Merry Men, the Disney film from the 1950s, which your mother can talk about at length, having watched it. But not until later. OK, uh, Mark Pinsky put it in his book, The Gospel According to Disney. This movie is social gospel in action with a member of the clergy playing a crucial role. And for a change, Friar Chuck actually is a clergyman. They actually, with respect treat him as a clergyman. One of Anderson's ideas for Friar Tuck was to make him a pig, but they were afraid that making him a pig would be considered offensive by the Roman Catholic Church. So that's why he is, and I only know this because they put it in the opening sequence, he's a badger. Otherwise, forget guessing. I always thought he was a bear, always, <laughs> even though it says badger, but that's so funny. I don't remember ever thinking of as any him anything but a badger. He has a weird sort of I don't know what that is, vaguely mammal face. <laughs> okay, his badger face looks like the badger face kind of from Wind in the Willows, I mean. <laughs> a little. He I mean, he's a badger that is like almost as big as the bear and and certainly bigger than the lion, but again, you you can't worry about that. I guess, you know, you got to put this picture out of the out of the book up on the uh, on your web feed when you do this, because this is what I saw. And there is nothing about this that says badger. I, I agree. You can once you know it's a badger, you can be like, oh, that's a badger. He knows. But I don't remember not knowing that. But that's OK. <laughs> it's fine. I mean, he is a badger. We're not disputing that. But all the animals in this are, are, of course, very anthropomorphized. They're mostly animal heads on human bodies. Another Anderson <laughs> idea, except uh, Alan Adale, probably because he was designed for a different movie. Correct. Alan Chanticleer, who is is clearly a rooster. It's a kid's movie, right? And it is not the most serious, most thoughtful, most, but it is entertaining. And it is a movie that adults can watch and be entertained by. So I don't want to get into, I don't want to pretend like this is some deep font of philosophical treasure here, but at the same time, I, I think it is, I think it is a good message, which is kind of surprising when you think that it's basically the story of a thief and a con yes. man. And since we're talking about this, I will say watching it this time, I know that this just looms large over everything and you can see it in everything. But I do think there are some parallels one could draw between like Prince John and Trump this time again. And, you know, obviously not intentional, but watching it this time, I couldn't help but think about like the guy who is so st 
stupid. So obviously does not have a single brain cell in his head and just desperately craves love and attention that he never got and is just pure greed and id and is pathetic and humorous, but at the same time is dangerous and makes life worse for everyone. And the dangers of giving that type of guy power Again, I, I don't even think this is the first movie I've said this about on this podcast, but it, it made it resonate even more and made it even more enjoyable last night to see his downfall. So let me ask you this. Do you think the reason that Steve Bannon got kicked out of the White House was because he deliberately dodged? <laughs> Maybe. I will say that that's that's the other thing I was thinking of in this movie. All of his underlings openly despise him. And that, again, feels like that whole weird Trump White House where everyone hates each other. Everyone is grifting everyone. But, sir, it's a big <laughs> hit. Everybody in the village is saying it. Right. That's that's, you know, again, not to go too far with the parallels, but that is like Mitch McConnell being like in private. Oh, I totally hate this guy, but he'll get me my judges. So whatever. It is an interesting thing about the storytelling is these are bad people, right? Uh, the sheriff of Nottingham, who is a very minor character in this version of the story, he's the major character in other, or the major villain in other other versions. But in this one, he's a, kind of a minor character. He is very, very bad, and he's very, very good at being bad. But he's also stupid, right? He's good enough to hear the chink of coins in the blacksmith's cast, uh, and to get those out. But he's easily fooled with flattery he is easily distracted by even the dumbest disguises he lets nutsy stay on his staff and for some reason tolerates trigger <laughs> you know stupid people surround themselves with stupid mm. people because it makes them feel like they're smarter this is something that happens in real life stupidity it occurs in nature <laughs> the mm. villains in this movie are they're not criminal masterminds they're not Maleficent mistress of evil. They're not supernatural forces. They are petty bullies who took an opportunity to grab power, but they have nothing. Nobody likes them. They have no connection versus this lo beautiful love story and family and friendship. And, you know, again, just the the juxtaposition that happens in the movie. We're bouncing around more than we usually do, but the, the juxtaposition in this movie of the lovely party in Sherwood Forest where everyone's dancing, they're singing this fun song, and then the cold interior of Prince John's Castle where three people are allowed to be and they all hate each other and they're just surrounded by the clink of coins and there's no life. While Prince John is slumped over, hating his life, surrounded by Tony Montana piles of loot, Drinking the wine and just absolutely miserable. And when he kind of sparks is when he thinks that he's coming up with a, a brilliant plan. Nobody is mustache twirlingly evil. They're just they're what bad people are are like. The worst villains we have to deal with don't come swooping out of the wings with a cape in front of their face, twirling their mustache. The worst ones are the are the bullies that we deal with on a regular basis. It's part of why this movie feels very present. So let's uh, let's go through the synopsis, even though we have touched on many of the scenes. So this movie starts with a book, but it's an animated book again. 
cheat numero uno. <laughs> but they don't read aloud from it, which is kind of funny, because usually when there's an animated book, the narrator is reading from it. But in this case, one of the illuminations on the page takes over and says, yeah, there's a lot of versions. Here's the Animal Kingdom version. Right, which is Ken Anderson being like, this is our excuse for having animals. Right. Don't worry about it. Calm mm -hmm. down. Because the pictures in the book are humans. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, this version is lame. We're going to do a goofy Western for you now. I'm Roger <laughs> Miller. You mean Alan Adele? <laughs> I do not. <laughs> uh, and then Whistle Stop. Right out the gate, starting with a great song. And the whistle stop plays over the montage where they introduce all the characters. And they have to tell you who they are, as well as who they're voiced by. And what kind of animal they are. With the picture of the character, which is, you know, it's pretty crazy. I would have loved to see more credits like this in Disney movies, even though, once again, it is an excuse to reuse animation because it's all shots from later in the film. Yeah, but it works. And that shocked me the first time I watched it because in the record cover, it doesn't specify what <laughs> kind of animal they are. That's true. I'm seeing it here, folks. It does not say Friar Tuck a badger. Nope. It just says narration by Roger Miller. It's funny, though, that it, Roger Miller's character, Alan Adale, is the only one who isn't credited with a name. He's just credited as a rooster or the rooster. I think he may be the. Everybody else is a something. And he's the. Which is weird because right after he introduces himself as Alan Adale. I know. He says, I'm Alan Adale. Because the animators really, 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 really wanted to convince themselves they had finally made a Chanticleer movie. We all know it. And I do like Miller, not only, of course, the Whistle Stop song, which he wrote, but his his narration here, his opening narration, I, I especially like that he's going to tell it like it is or was. Or whatever. Exactly. That's great. And then he fades out and you're like, oh, man, I can use some more Roger Miller. Don't even worry about it. Here's another great song. <laughs> well, if you need more Roger Miller, we've got the record. The Lolly song. <laughs> that Oklahoma drawl of his is so perfect. A counterbalance to some of the other scenes. It is a wonderful narration and it is wonderful technique to introduce this narration so that you understand what this movie is going to be like. So from the very beginning, you understand how this is going to work. So you're not going to walk out of it surprised, right? You're not walking into this expecting Snow White and getting 101 Dalmatians. You are very quickly left to understand what you're about to get. There is a storybook version of this movie. Uh, uh, you know, we could be doing British accents, but that's not what it is. This is the silly animal version. And here's a cowboy to open things up. Although, give him credit. Robin Hood does have a British accent in this movie, which is kind of rare. True. There are some there are British actors, of course, and, and him him being the prominent one. But yes. And Udalali is the first song with words also written and, of course, performed by Roger Miller, which it's hard for me to remember the name of it sometimes because I just think of it as Robin Hood and Little John walking through the forest. <laughs> And the the of course again the the use of nonsense words the whole oodalali oodalali ali what a day that is very much a Roger Miller thing, as is the whole rhythm and the way the the lines scan, reminiscent this and that. You gotta you gotta take some practice to to be able to say that. Having thirty plus years, I, I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> reminiscent this and that, and having such a good time oodalali oodalali ali what a day. 
it is a wonderful rhythm. It's the kind of patter song that you would associate with, you know, Gilbert and Sullivan or or other British, but it's very much been filtered through that countrified uh, American ethos. This scene in general is a really fun way to introduce the characters rather than, again, hard not to compare this to the Aristocats since we just watched it, where it's like, here are the characters, they're on a horse, you don't hear their names for like 20 minutes, and then they're doing this piano thing that isn't interesting. It's like, here is a short mini-sode of Robin Hood and Lil Jon having fun, walking through the forest, and the Sheriff of Nottingham, and the Wolf Archers, and the rhinos chasing them around. I like when they're walking on the log, they're walking on the log bridge over the river, because of course, you know, the, I don't know, original, whatever, the most commonly told story of how Robin Hood and Little John met, right? Yes, right. How they're both trying to cross a bridge over a river or stream, a log bridge, and they neither of them will give way to each other, so they have to fight to see who's better. And that's how, you know, Little John joins Robin Hood's band. But in this, they're both crossing the log together and like, after you, after you, and then they both end up falling in the water, but like a silly thing. So it's kind of a subversion of the original story. But of course, as a child, no way of knowing about that. But then watching it as an adult, I'm like, ah, oh, that's actually really funny. Yes. <laughs> it's not on the record, you know. Of course not. <laughs> the interesting thing about this, though, even though this is a very episodic story, right? We see a, several different scenes. They do thread together and not just by the narration, mm-hmm. right? Because it starts with they fall in the water. Later on, they're getting chased. They have to hide under the water as the sheriff's men are shooting arrows into the water, right? At the end of the movie, we'll come back to this and we'll kind of bookend it. Yeah, definitely. This is it's not like the Jungle Book as much as I, of course, love that movie, which is just episodes. And also, you know, a bit of a deviation from the Jungle Book. So after this, we get our first conversation between Phil Harris as Little John and Brian Bedford as Robin Hood, which I commented has more funny jokes than the entirety of the Aristocats. Which I stand by. Rapid fire jokes. But it starts off with a very philosophical question. Yes. Are we good guys or bad guys? Right. And this is what I was going to say. As much as Phil Harris is getting to be the goofy side character in this, he also does get to have some actual pathos, even more so at the end. But here, not only is he asking that question, but again, setting up that ending, he's talking about Robin, you're taking too many chances and... He has an arrow through his hat and all this silliness. And that's not a candle on a cake. (laughs) (laughs) And and Robin is like, no, I'm invincible. I'm going to live forever. Who cares? And then we do have the carriage scene. We have the aforementioned copy pasted rhinos. And the song I always think of when I think of Robin Hood, even again, when we're playing villainous, we're dead. Almost always plays Prince John. And or at least when I'm I'm playing, I mean, but anytime we play villainous, just like the fact that J- Prince John is mentioned, even if we just mention his name in the box, like uh, who, does anyone want to play Prince John? Every time I get stuck in my head, D D D D D D D D D D D D D D D the whole fanfare starting with the great da 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 da, which is the big fanfare that that knocks uh, Robin and Lil John out of the previous scene. That's that's what gets their attention. It's great music. And now we're having a new scene, but it just flows right in. It is a, it is one of the it is one of the best fanfares 
Gotta give old George credit. And now we meet Prince John and Sir Hiss. This will be Robin Hood and Lil Jon's first time interacting with Prince John. It seems they've they've mostly just been messing with the sheriff because Prince John and Sir Hiss have been on a whistle stop tour of ruining <laughs> towns. And now it's time to go to Notting. <laughs> oh, the richest blub of them all. Notting. <laughs> Ahem. Yes. And there's so much business with the crown, which is such a good visual idea of, you know, how do we literalize that Prince John is is no match for his brother, no replacement. Yes. The crown doesn't even fit on his head. If he yep. stretches out his ears, he can barely balance it. Just so. <laughs> and I love how much Sir Hiss is kissing up to him here. And so much so that at one point, even Prince John, who clearly loves this, has to go, don't overdo it. <laughs> Every scene with the two of them is the best. I mean, and, and Lil John and Robin Hood are great, too. But but this double act is they, they can't compete. They can't compete. This double act is the equal of Merlin and Archimedes and Sword in the Stone, I think. Yeah, I, I'd probably give this one the edge. That's fair. And Sir, his hypnotized Richard to go on the crusade. But so I guess. King Richard is off killing Jewish animals somewhere. Let's not think about that too hard. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's not. Let's not. <laughs> let's not. <laughs> Sir Hiss can't hypnotize Prince John because he knows it's coming. And so, again, this this establishes the power dynamic of Sir Hiss can't seize power, even though he probably is just slightly the smarter one. He's a little bit more observant, at least, as we'll see when they do interact with um, Robin Hood and Little John, who have gotten themselves all costumed up, and they are dressed as fortune tellers. I want to say something though, because when we were watching this, uh, they so clearly stole from Ka so many elements of yes. this that you actually said, "Why didn't they bring back Sterling Holloway for this part?" Right. Not because I don't like Terry Thomas, but because I was surprised if we're bringing back Baloo, we weren't bringing back Ka. But again, I think it works better um, and not just because they're both British, but I think because Terry Thomas is able to amp it up and to keep that parody level with Ustinov, right, so that they can truly play off each other. I don't know if they did any filming together or if it's or not filming recording together or if this was completely independent, but the, the result comes out. So perfectly balanced, you would believe that these were two actors sitting in the same room, right. just riffing on each other. This is also where we get introduced to Prince John's thumb sucking, which is not my favorite joke, but it is the perfect encapsulation of how much this guy is a baby, how he's never had to face a problem in his life, just how much he generally sucks his thumb. First mom status. Mother always did like Richard best. Ah, mommy! <laughs> Any mention of mother means he has to suck his thumb. <laughs> the, the sucking noises are incredible. You have a very loud thumb. <laughs> <laughs> and then as mom said, Robin Hood and Lil Jon, well, they, they have a little debate about it, which again is their nice dynamic of Lil Jon being a little more cautious Talking about, uh, I love his his joking line. There's a law against Robin royalty, but <laughs> they are eventually convinced. Uh, he's eventually convinced that they again are they good guys or bad guys? Right, 
course, they go out, they are dressed up as women and fortune tellers, fortunes forecasts, lucky charms. I like how Robin Hood is doing a silly high-pitched voice and um, Little John is just talking in his normal Little John voice. He's just he's just Phil Harris. Dressed up uh, as a woman. At least he doesn't say much because it is a bit jarring. I don't know if that's because Phil Harris couldn't do a woman's voice or they thought it would be funnier. Either way, it is funnier. Bedford really does a good job with all these imitations. Yeah. The thing that perhaps always impresses me the most in voice acting, which is when someone can play a character doing the voice of another character. And And this is like a thing that is very successful for anyone in the movie who does this. And Robin is especially good at it, playing to the villain's vanity and telling yeah. them what they want to hear and being their yes man. This is how Robin and Lil Jon conduct so many of their schemes in this. And this one especially, there's maybe my favorite little moment of this is, of course, them kissing his rings and <laughs> eating his gems as they do so. <laughs> yes. Which is a joke that gets paid off so much late. It gets paid off so well, like 45 minutes into the movie. But even ridiculous things like talk about how cuddly Prince John is and then cuddly, that's me to a T. <laughs> and this is a well-practiced scam, which Lil John mentions, even though he's nervous about doing it with the prince, where as Robin distracts him and they have a glowing ball to be a spirit. There's fireflies in a in a glass ball. That that whole bit with the fireflies was very hard as a kid to to make out on the record. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Because he's like, "Come on, little fireflies, glow, babies, glow." And I'm like, "What is glowing?" <laughs> Meanwhile, little John steals various items, uh, especially enjoy these solid gold hubcaps, and he also yes. drills into a treasure chest four people are holding to take all the gold out from under, which. They don't yes. notice because they're just static uh, copy yeah. paste. <laughs> they can't tell that the chest is getting lighter. They can't see him right in front of their nose. I told General Hux we shouldn't have used a clone army. <laughs> the the fascinating thing about this, though, you also you, you have to remember the the whole business with Prince John gets mad at at Hiss and slams him into the basket. Yes, because Sir Hiss sees what's going on and is suspicious and is like, nope, Hiss, you got to get out of here. So he hides him in the basket right. the whole time. Because he's not being flattered. Right. And Hiss, even from the basket, almost trips up Robin's plans to get off with a, with salute. And I like when we're off watching Little John, we don't see what else Robin Hood is doing until he comes out of the carriage and somehow he has tricked Little John out of his clothes, even. <laughs> All little John is wearing is his long underwear and his crown. <laughs> yep, and we have a nice chase scene. And, of course, Hiss gets blamed for everything in the end. Hiss, you're never around when I need you. They, of course, they get away with all the money. Prince John and Hiss end up in the mud. He's got a dirty thumb. So he puts a huge reward on Robin Hood, which again, like these scenes do have connective tissue. There is a plot. And this is where we meet our other villain, the Sheriff of Nottingham, who sort of has a song. It's just him going like doo doo doo. <laughs> I know it's never credited as a song for this movie, but he does just kind of bebop along. <laughs> It's a bit of not a Nottingham. A little bit, yeah. It's not exactly. It's kind of like if I were to play you a song one time and say, okay, now hum it, 
you're right. That's exactly what it is. And that that's so I'm like almost mad at him because that's such a sad song and he's singing it in such a mocking way that that's a good detail. But again, it's a detail that helps reinforce because we're going to tie all this together. and We're going to come back to this and you're going to hear this song and you're going to hear him humming it again later. Uh, it's it's all these layers that that keep coming back. So that it's not just a series of semi disconnected episodes. Uh, the sheriff manages to take everybody's tax money. Friar Tuck shows up and, and gives some money to the the blacksmith who's broken his leg and has a cast that is comically large. And when they hear the sheriff coming, they stash the coins in the cast and the sheriff is able to figure it out while dropping actually some pretty good one liners. True. Let's let's give him credit. But the sheriff is the sheriff scenes are almost hard to watch because even more than Prince John Serhis, he is so what we see him doing is so much more cruel. Villains in Disney movies trying to kill their heroes. We see that all the time. And that's mostly what John is up to. But like here, the sheriff of Nottingham hitting the blacksmith in the cast to get the last couple coins out of it. And the dog blacksmith, you know, making sounds of pain. Like, not only is he stealing his desperately needed, he's stealing the desperately needed livelihood of a disabled person. He is hurting him physically to do it. Right. It's brutal. And then after this, of course. J. Pat O'Malley, by the way, as Otto should be called. out. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, who who mom and I recognized because we've been watching so many of these. <laughs> and then after this, he literally steals the last farthing of a rabbit family, which they are giving to a child for his birthday. It is so, so mean. It is so despicable. Yeah. Here's the thing. He's kind of a comical character. He's kind of funny, clearly. Like I said, he drops some pretty good one-liners as he's going through it. But he is unquestionably bad right because here's the thing robin hood is stealing from royalty are we good guys or bad guys the only way to answer that is to make sure that the bad guys are legitimately unquestionably repugnantly bad and it's important that pat buttram is playing this role not only because he does a good job but because it lends him an air of goofiness that lets him be in a disney movie otherwise you'd just be like this is the worst person (laughs) And he is still horrible and cruel, but it it makes him just that like five percent silliness that makes it so it doesn't take you out of this world like this is dark, (laughs) but it is it's it's as dark as you could get. Right. The other great cinematic sheriff of Nottingham, of course, is uh, Alan Rickman, who is very much over the edge, dark, a very scary because it would hurt more type of sheriff. This one, again, he is a very despicable villain, but he is comical enough to still have a place in a kid's movie made by Disney. Because here's the thing. Kids like villains. You define your hero by who he is resisting. Yes, and this... This scene does that perfectly because as the sheriff walks out of the rabbit home, Robin Hood walks in and he brings them joy. It's not just that he brings them actual money and gives a bow and arrow to Skippy, which is a very bad gift. Do not give a weapon to a child 
That is a very bad idea. <laughs> Statistically, Skippy's going to shoot a member of his family. Especially because there's 13 other brothers and sisters. You know, we're dealing with rabbits. That's why there's only three by the end of this movie. That's <laughs> Skippy. But but he also like he's good with the kids and he has a nice conversation with everyone and he's trying to give them hope. I especially like his parting line about someday there will be happiness again in Nottingham, which is the thing. This movie is willing to get sad to a level that a lot of other movies aren't. This is something Anderson takes credit for. It's probably partially him. Yeah. And we also have before his his parting line, you also have the line uh, where he says he wishes he could do more. Yes. I only wish I could do more. Right. He is putting his life on the line in a very legitimate, real fashion. He has robbed Prince John down to his underwear. And he still, by the time he's parceled it out across Nottingham, he still wishes he could do more. He comes into the birthday party, by the way, dressed as a blind beggar, which I just bring up because he'll be using that costume again later. It's arms. Alms for the poor. And this, when he comes in as a blind beggar, the sheriff goes out and very cleverly uses the farthing. He bounces it in the cup to make all the coins bounce out and swipes them. So you get this nice, clever, evil, look how bad the the sheriff is. While at the same time, you get a, the sheriff was so dumb, he didn't spot that the only fox (laughs) in Nottingham. (laughs) Yeah. This is why it doesn't matter what animals they are, even if we were specifically told what they were, because they don't recognize each other by the animal they are. (laughs) Right. But again, he doesn't recognize Robin Hood in a frankly kind of weak disguise. Right. And, And speaking of the sadness of this movie, I forgot to say there is an interpretation of this movie, which none of the animators have ever confirmed. Some of them have winked at a little bit. Take it with a grain of salt, I say. But that this movie is in part about what was going on at Disney at the time. The king is gone. Walt is dead. And now we have these taskmasters who are keeping all the money from us. (laughs) And someday there will be happiness in Nottingham again. I wonder if that inflects why this movie is so sad in the same way as my theory that the reason that something like uh, Willie the Operatic Whale is so sad is because a lot of sad stuff was happening at the Disney studios at the time. And there was a lot of war and misery. It's certainly, you could certainly make the argument. I don't know, honestly, what the truth is or isn't, but it's a theory. It's a theory. I'm not saying it's true, but it's, it's interesting to think about. So now we get the four children going off to play with Skippy's bow and arrow, Skippy, Toby, the tortoise. And apparently the, he has his two he has his two sisters along Skippy does and the only names i could find for them are the older one is sis and the little one is tagalong <laughs> i could pretty much take or leave this kid stuff this is the least interesting part of the movie for me until of course they get to maid marion and lady cluck the only point of these kids as far as i can see is basically to help reinforce that robin hood is a hero to the people and to connect to the next scene which is kind of important which is maid marian is not with robin hood why is that yeah the introduction of maid marian and lady cluck so they are at least an easy 
an easy way to get to and through the exposition. And of course, the classic thing of of putting putting kids in the kids movies so the kids have somebody to relate to, whatever. But yes, Lady Lady Cluck, Carol Shelley redeeming herself from being by mom and I's vote the worst character in the previous movie. Lady Cluck is a ton of fun. Yeah, these two actresses who did the two geese in the previous movie are made Marion and Lady Cluck in this one, and they're just so much better, so much more fun to listen to. I love their banter when they're playing badminton before they're interacting with the children, but then they're interacting with the children is fun. To. I enjoy them playing with the kids, much like I enjoyed Robin interacting with the kids more than I enjoy the kids on their own, because, of course, they they play a little game where they let Skippy pretend to be Robin Hood since he has gotten the bow and one of Robin's many identical hats. Pretty sure he buys those in bulk. Yes. <laughs> I like Lady Cluck imitating Prince John. Yes. Ah, 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 ah. I, Prince John. Challenge you to a duel. (laughs) (laughs) I could probably do a better Lady Cluck as Prince John than I could do Prince John. I I agree. (laughs) I agree. Much easier to do. Yes. And as you say, we establish here that main Mary, that they were sweethearts. And then in the next movie we get or in the next scene, we get more explanation. Maid Marion has had to go away to London for a time and she just doesn't know if Robin remembers her anymore. Right. They they were childhood friends slash sweethearts and neither of them know if they love each other. I like the Maid Mary and Robin Hood romance. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have to say in this movie, it does work for me, even though Maid Marian is barely a character. It's a very trite Disney romance. I think, again, the actors sell it and the music sells it so much that I end up really enjoying it. And of course, we go from Maid Marian sighing at her window. Oh, Clucky, what if he's forgotten all about me to a scene of Robin Hood in Sherwood Forest dreaming of Maid Marian (laughs) burning food and referring to referring to Lil John as Johnny, which I feel like all of this again, this is so Western. This is so we have a campfire and calling him Johnny. But I enjoy that vibe. Yeah, when he's trying, when Little John's trying to get Robin's attention and he calls him all a bunch of nicknames and he says, Robert, I did not understand that he's just doing like a different pronunciation of Robert when I was a kid. I just was like, why is he saying Robert? Like, I know he's a bear. It's the French version of it. I know. But when I was a child, it made no sense is what I'm saying. <laughs> As your listeners may not know. I actually grew up in Africa and we had a houseworker whose name was Robert. And we were always very careful when we spoke English in the house, never to use his name because you don't want to talk about somebody and have them say, so what are they saying about me? Even if it was something like go ask Robert when the lunch will be ready. You don't say his name. But one day when I was listening to this album, And the album said his name and he came in to hear what was going on. And so I had to try to explain the story of Robin Hood to uh, an African man who had zero points of cultural connection. (laughs) That's funny. Because let me tell you something. Back when it was the Belgian Congo, the idea of standing up to the rich and the powerful, never going to be allowed. I I also like that Robin, his concern with Maid Marian is not only that we haven't seen each other for a long time, which is valid, but also we're such different classes, right? She's 
She's related to royalty. She's a highborn lady of style. We were talking about this last week. Unlike some other Disney movies where there's like no reason for the romantic partners to be separated. This makes sense. Uh (laughs) Making sense is pretty good for a Disney romance. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I give it that. That's part of why it works better for me. And Friar Tuck now joins joins these guys and he's talking about you're no outlaw. You'll be remembered as a hero. A hero? You hear that, Johnny? We've just been pardoned. That's another word that I didn't understand when I was a kid. Then he says that's a gas. So I thought it had something to do with the toilet. (laughs) (laughs) But also that whole, you know, he's talking about like, you're going to be a hero. You hear that? We've been parted. That's a guess. Like they have that gallows humor kind of. uh, Yes. As you were talking about at the beginning, how is this going to end? And this leads into a Friar Tuck exposits so that we can get to the next scene which overall is my favorite scene of the movie. Mine too. (laughs) Which is the Tournament of the Golden Arrow. Specifically, if I have to pick... The Tournament of the Golden Arrow is about to begin. (laughs) If I have to pick my favorite part, because this is a very long sequence, my, my favorite scene specifically would be the end where they're all running around and... Maid Marian and uh, uh, Robin Hood are committing to getting married. Everything from there to the end. And again, the aforementioned Lady Cluck running. That would be my favorite part. But everything about the tournament I love. The music is incredible, whether it's the fanfare happening again at the beginning or the funky guitar during the action scene, which I quite enjoy. Again, there's just so many jokes in this. There's more costume humor One of the funniest things in the whole movie to me is Little John's costume in this scene (laughs) as Reginald, Duke of Chutney. I am Sir Reginald, Duke of Chutney. Bursting at the seams. It is the least convincing costume of all time. But again, he's talking about how great PJ is. PJ, you know, I like that. So even though PJ actually sees through Robin Hood's disguise, he is completely blind to the far, far worse design, <laughs> disguise rather, of Little John. Because Little John is flattering him. Exactly. Right? It's the theme again. He can't see through the flattery. Flattery completely blinds yeah. him. But what he sees is that Maid Marian seems interested in the spindle-legged stork, and then the spindle-legged stork is an excellent archer. And so that's how he figures out that it's Robin Hood. I do like when they're putting the the disguise on and Robin says, this disguise would fool my own mother. Mom status, but your mom ain't here. (laughs) So when I was a kid, when I was a kid, I was given a bow and arrow. And then the bow and arrow were taken away from me because I was a kid. And let's be serious. These are not good children's toys. Right. I was allowed to have it back when I was a little bit older. And so I actually practiced archery and never to the level of of a Robin Hood, obviously, because he's made up. (laughs) The archery scene in this, when I first watched it, it bothered me no end. Yes. Because things like... The arrow that is tied together and still flies straight. Robin Hood has the worst arrows. All of these things when I was young and, you know, very serious and very 
Young engineers tend to be very literal, and I was very literal as a child, and it bothered me that everything about the archery tournament is horrible, and not just because the Sheriff of Nottingham is cheating like a big dog. But it, it bothered me a lot. But later on, I, I, you know, once I got through my literalness, again, it's we don't care if this is real. You mentioned the, the Robin Hood movie with, with Errol Flynn. They actually hired an Olympic archer. And they put pieces of wood in people's tunics so that he could actually (laughs) shoot people with an arrow. Not hard, not from far away, but so that you could actually see the arrows go into people's chest. Um, (laughs) That to me is insane. That just shows the (laughs) difference in movie making back then. Right. Now the insurance is like Chris Evans cannot be near a fight. (laughs) (laughs) We can't even use stuntmen. It all has to be CGI and look completely terrible. How far is far enough away to be safe? We're talking zip codes here. But again, so they tried for great realism in that movie. And this one, we don't care. It's animation. Or Prime Two was just kind of waving in the general vicinity of archery. My favorite little bit of animation in the arrow shooting is as Robin Hood, as this Stork character is talking about, uh, you know, oh, I'm no Robin Hood, sir. And he casually like swinging back and forth just with zero effort or motion fires off a perfect shot at a possible angle. I love that moment. And again, you cannot fire a bow (laughs) that way. You have to have any tension in your arms, but it shows how effortlessly he can beat the sheriff and how good of an archer he is, which is the point. My favorite tiny moment in the entire archery scene is a complete throwaway when the turtle shoots and Toby from the sideline goes, Yay, Dad! Yes! <laughs> that is quite funny. It is such a perfect little moment that has nothing whatsoever. I did have to go check and make sure it wasn't Reitherman's kid again. <laughs> I know. <laughs> what about when the sheepdog is shooting and he has to poof up his, his fur over his eyes before he shoots? I like that moment. Those are some good moments. Those are some good moments. (laughs) But the best stuff here is with Prince John and Hiss. And little John. No, Prince John. I know, but Prince John and little John and Hiss. Yes, they're they're trio. Whether it's Hiss putting himself in a balloon or some of my favorite PJ one-liners, including sudden, instant, and even immediate death. Yes. And some of my favorite little John one-liners, including be gone, long one. Which is barely a joke, but it, it the line reading very much tickles me. No, it's a it's a really good one. It always stuck with me. I also love so we start the scene with Prince John and Sir Hiss sitting in the royal box, and Prince John goes, Hiss, no one sits higher than the crown. Must I remind you, Hiss? And then of course, once Little John comes in and sits down, he is automatically taller than Prince John. And Prince John doesn't notice because he's being flattered so much. He is laying it on so thick. He is flattering him. His butt is being kissed. <laughs> I also like that for so long, it seems like Little John's gambit has nothing to do with any sort of plan. He's just showing off how much he can trick Prince John. But eventually, Robin Hood will be captured. And again, the moment where he he's like, Maid Marian's begging for his life, admits that she loves him, 
And Prince John, you know, says, and does this outlaw return your love? And Brian Bedford, little Fox animation, looks up. He's in chains, looks like he's done for. And he says, Marion, my darling, I love you more than life itself. Because he has risked his life to come to this tournament just to see her and see if she still has feelings for him. And he could accept his death in this moment because he knows he has her love. It's it is a more powerful moment than this movie deserves. Yes, the line reading sells so much. For this moment, Brian Bedford was absolutely worthy of being cast for this because in that one moment, he pours all the sincerity that has to be driving this character into his voice. And it is such a powerful reading. It is such a sincere, deep, heartfelt reading. This is why even as a kid, I understood that voice actors are actors. And the the rule of great storytelling or great comedy is to call back something the moment after the audience has forgotten it. And I feel like that happens here when you're like, how can Robin Hood get out of this one? He seems, you know, genuinely dead. The executioner is coming for him. That is where, surprise, you forgot about Little John. He hasn't been here for a while, but he has a knife to Prince John's throat. And of course, we get the immortal line, Sheriff, I make the rules, which is only immortal <laughs> to our family and not that line. <laughs> but Yep, because li- Little John's purpose is to be there to get Robin Hood out of the trouble if necessary. Because, of course, the sheriff is suspicious, goes around behind, finds out that Little John is, you know, got a knife to Prince John's back. And then the battle begins. I do want to point out Lady Clex shouts out, Yee-hoo! Love conquers all! When it's really mostly Little John. It right. is, it is. They think it's, they that Prince John was convinced because of the their true love, but no, it's it's the true knife in his back. <laughs> but love conquers all. That is the th- yeah. that is what this movie is kind of about. Um, except in this case, it's it's Little John's love for his buddy more than. Well, sure, that's a type of love. But here's the thing: Why is the sheriff suspicious? Because he knows there's no way Prince John was swayed by love. Of course not. No way he's ever going to let Robin Hood go. He he is only hate and the object of his hatred is in his grasp. But we have the action scene. We have the football. We have the fun guitar score. We have the bit I always enjoy. You know, in the mailbag episode, I talked about Pirates of the Caribbean 3 that has a similar scene, which is Robin Hood and Maid Marian discussing their wedding plans as they fight off bad guys. And even Maid Marian gets to hit one of the vultures with a pie. Yeah, I think it's Trigger. She has some agency in exchange for her disappearing from this movie. (laughs) Especially because at the beginning of the chase scene, she's running going, oh, help, Robin, help. Right. She mostly exists in order to be the damsel in distress, but she does have one good moment here. She does. And I but but Lady Cluck has a better one. (laughs) Lady Cluck is like eight good moments. (laughs) <laughs> yes, she's the, she keeps holding on to the golden arrow that was supposed to be the prize and she pokes everybody with it. <laughs> and, she, and at the end, she starts giving I forget what she says. I'm sure you guys know, but she gives like a six separate Tyrannus speech and little John has to be like, lady, you will be shot to death. She says, love 
conquers all and then gets again and then gets grabbed away. Doesn't I thought she? she said something about long live King Richard. No, you're right. She does. She says long live King Richard. You're right. I'm thinking of the right, which scene. Robin also says and down with that scurry prince John. Uh, and this scene even has the perfect button, which is his has been locked in an ale barrel. He gets out. He's drunk. They have some fun little banter. It's a callback to the basket scene where he gets shoved in the basket by Prince John. Here he gets shoved into the ale barrel by uh, uh, Alan Adele and Friar Tuck. And and the great button of drunk hiss. And then PJ gets mad, ties him up into a really hilarious knot. Uh, they have so much fun with Sir Hiss. And you can see he is a character where they spent the money to animate new stuff. Ties him up into this hilarious knot and then says, get out of that if you can. And it's so funny to imagine the hours Sir Hiss has to spend after that. (laughs) Undoing the crazy Gordian knot of his own body. Just muttering himself all the time. You can imagine the scene. If you want to see an active Maid Marian, you're going to have to wait a while until you can get to 1976's Robin and Marian, in which... Marion is played by none other than Audrey Hepburn. Robin Hood, however, is played by Sean Connery. But by and large, the character of Marion in almost all of the stories is there to be the damsel in distress. Occasionally, she gets to deliver messages. Uh, so in this situation, Disney is kind of following the tradition if you will, of Robin Hood. But then they go into the slow song, a song simply called Love. Which which was nominated for an Academy Award. I will say I like this song. It is very much the slow song TM, but I I like it more than the vast majority of the slow songs. I think it's kind of nice. Yeah, it's it's fine. It's fine as a love song. When I was a kid, This was the song that I always tried to skip on the album because I thought it was boring and dull and because it is followed by one of the best songs, one of the most rousing songs, one of the most interesting songs, Prince John, the phony king of England, Uh, which, of course, Phil Harris must have a song. Here it is. And this one is a great song. I mean, obviously, Bare Necessities is going to be the Disney song most associated. Frankly, it's the song most associated with Phil Harris for the rest of uh, probably history. But this is a great song where he really gets to kind of show off his growly voice and his his sudden changes. And it is a great stretch for him. Um, And it's just a funny, catchy, whimsical song. And he calls for his mom while he's sucking his thumb. And this is important because when they, you know, when you see Nottingham, how miserable it is and how miserable it is after this, you can see the happiness, even though in this little forest, they have nothing. Maid Marian has lost, you know, her title. She's become an outlaw. She's lost everything. Everyone else who's come with them who's in the town. Usually, you know, like they all have to live as outlaws now. But it's so much more fun and so much more lively. And you want to go to this party, even though this is also one of the scenes with the most recycled animation in the entire movie. You want to go to this party. And as mentioned previously, so we won't talk about it again. After this, the other villains are singing this song again. And uh, PJ gets mad. And so he raises the taxes to impossible levels, mainly so that 
a surprisingly radical and realistic turn for a Disney movie, capital and and wealth as a tool for incarceration. But if we can pause to stop on the music here for just a moment, I would like to back up because this song that we're talking about was written by Johnny Mercer. Johnny Mercer, who was, of course, a famous Tin Pan Alley lyricist uh, and a singer and performer in his own right, wrote some of the most successful hits of his time, including, uh, since I mentioned Audrey Hepburn, I wanted to loop back because he also wrote the lyrics for Moon River and Days of Wine and Roses, which are also associated with, with Audrey Hepburn. The lyrics that are part of this song, this song is the catchy, singable, you're going to walk away remembering the song, whether you want to or not. And that is why even the villains are singing this song and they can't help themselves but sing the song. It is a song written to be a hit. And it's the one song written by uh, not Roger Miller, uh, no music by George Bruns, nothing to do with the rest of them. Here is just Johnny Mercer's The Phony King of England. And it is it's a protest song in the context of the movie. Uh, because clearly, I mean, the way every time anyone has said, like, long live King Richard, that is like that is a protest slogan. Clearly, that is something you are going to get arrested or killed more likely for. Even Robin Hood will only say it when he is about to be executed. Mm-hmm. So the fact that this song is calling him the phony King of England, big deal in the context of the film. And so then all that other stuff I described happens and we get. I would say this is my favorite song in the movie. Not surprising because it's a sad one and I love feeling sad. Not in Nottingham by Roger Miller. I think it's just a beautiful, mournful song from a guy who is normally associated with upbeat, catchy silliness. And this song is, again, this is the power of country music when it is done well, is it's really good at this kind of soft, sad ballad. But this one is... It is simply a song about how sad things are. This isn't my wife ran away, my dog got run over, someone stole my truck, whatever. This is, it's just the feeling poured into a song. And this was Roger Miller's strength as a songwriter. He gets remembered for all of his weird, odd novelty songs, but he really was quite good at portraying the feeling of something. Even the song you mentioned earlier, Dang Me, or one of my personal favorites, My Uncle Used to Love Me But She Died, songs that have no sensible lyrics, and yet you get a feeling out of them. They feel, the the lyrics are just placeholders for the vocal accompaniment to the music, right? But this song takes all of that and turns it in a different direction, We're going to make you feel sad. You cannot listen to this song and not feel sad. When you get to the chorus, I'm inclined to believe if we weren't so down, we'd up and leave. This is such a poetic imagery. It is such a powerful lyric, but it is the music that truly takes this to a real feeling of pathos. This is really Very, very, very sad for a kid's movie, for a Disney movie in general. But it works because it's the catharsis that you get out of classic drama. Right. And again, you know, not to equate everything to recent events, but the the whole point of this song is there are no ups. Everything is down. 
This is a song I did think about over the past year in 2020, where it seemed like everything was bad. And I have to think of the Disney animators who were all like it was the same team from the 30s and 40s thinking about that time like they had lived through times that seemed to be purely bad, true misery. And then after this beautiful song, we get another brutal scene with Sheriff of Nottingham and Friar Tuck where he is stealing the money right out of the poor box at the church and Friar Tuck, who has put up with so much and who seems to be kind of the outlaw's liaison to the town, so he's never quite let himself get caught doing illegal stuff. He can't take it anymore. He yells, get out of my church. And like Jesus driving the money lenders out of the temple, he starts attacking the sheriff with a stick. He can't help himself. He finally lets his guard down. The emotions of the scene are very real. And this gives Prince John an opening. He is going to execute uh, 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 Friar Tuck to lure out Robin Hood. And even Sir Hiss can hardly believe that he's going to do that. He's going to kill a man of the cloth who is beloved by the people. But there is truly no depths of depravity Prince John will not sing to. And this is also this very important scene you mentioned earlier where he is just sitting surrounded by his money and nothing can bring him to life until he comes up with this awful plan. It's not the money he wants anymore. It's not the power. He wants to kill Robin Hood. He needs to defeat and destroy Robin Hood. It's Robin Hood I want because he's been humiliated by Robin Hood twice and he cannot live with that. I did want to mention in that scene in the church, there's the two mice who are also working in the church with Friar Tuck, the sexton and his wife, little sister. And she being voiced by Barbara Luddy, she does the Merryweather. <laughs> she does. <laughs> it's only once. Basically, when she gives their last farthing for the poor box because it was empty, Sheriff comes in, takes it out, and she says, ooh, you put that back. So I just had to call that out. And we respect you for it. Then the Sheriff of Nottingham and two characters we've seen around but haven't been properly introduced to, Trigger and Nutsy, they're building a gallows. And once again, Robin Hood shows up in the beggar costume. And once again, he knows that how to get the information is to flatter the sheriff. And Trigger is going, you, you probably shouldn't be just saying everything to this beggar, but he's talking about like, do I hear the melodious voice of the sheriff? Because what these what all these guys want is to be loved and they have none of it because they're horrible. Even giving them obviously fake love. One, they don't know what love is, so they fall for it. And two, like that is what they want. So it, it always works. Again, it's the trick they keep playing. And it works. And the, the interesting thing is there is a kind of a wink to the audience because the audience is watching this. Maybe not little kids. But the adults in the audience are watching this going, how do they fall for this? But this is the trick. It's like most it's like a lot of up close magic, right? If you're the person that the magician is trying to fool, you can't see the trick. The guy standing over your shoulder a little bit away, who's got a slightly different angle, he might be able to catch the trick. The other guy, the one who's not the recipient of the flattery, is invariably suspicious, right? Usually it's Hiss and Prince John. Here it's Trigger, who's like, 
Sheriff, are you sure you want to be giving away all the secret plans? So the upshot of this scene, which I'm trying to go through because we've gone long, but of course, stop me if you want to. What we're doing here is a jailbreak. And I do like how at the beginning of this, we once again reaffirm that, you know, little John is worried. He's like, Robin Hood shouldn't be here. This is where it's going to go bad. And that feels like it's looming over this whole scene, maybe just because we've all seen this so many times. We know where it goes, that this is where it's going to go bad. Finally, almost went bad at the tournament, but this is where it might really happen. Before that, we do get some lots of funny stuff with Nutsy and the sheriff and Trigger. Nutsy is just insane and annoying and has no volume control. Trigger has a crossbow named Old Betsy that is constantly going off. Lots of funny jokes. Is the safety on Old Betsy? I thought so. I'm going. (laughs) You go first. One of the funniest Sheriff of Nottingham moments, because he can only be goofy when he's interacting with fellow villains. He's too mean when interacting with people. As well as another not nearly as powerful, but funny Brian Bedford line reading that sticks in my head. Rockabye Sheriff. Just you relax. (laughs) When Robin Hood is disguised as nutsy. Yes, with with a sock on his nose. Yes, there's almost more Robin Hood disguised as Nazi in this movie than there is actual Nazi. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's accurate. So John is freeing all of the prisoners while Prince John and Hiss, who sleeps in a little baby doll bed at the foot of Prince John's bed, surrounded by their money, are being robbed by Robin Hood. There's a clever idea with the pulley system. I was thinking, despite the fact that the backgrounds in this movie are usually have between zero and one colors, they're either solid colors with barely any detail or there actually is a lot of like plain white or white with colors at the edges, Winnie the Mm -hmm. Pooh-ish. You do get a pretty good sense of geometry, especially in this castle and the two different buildings all this stuff is happening in. There are color changes inside and outside, which help kind of establish some things. As, As Mom noted, the inside of the castle is incredibly cold. The inside of the jail is actually a warmer color. Uh, with the with the browns and the earth tones, then the the hard, cold, pale, almost white stone, because even though they're in prison and they're all miserable, they're together. And one of the favorite little moments in this for me is when the mice who are all chained to this giant giant ball, so they can't escape, but they're they're desperately hungry and they're starving. And one of the other inmates is eating biscuits, scone, whatever, who can even tell odd lumpy shape of food. Uh, and a crumb falls off when the mice can't reach it. He reaches down and hands it to them and shares it with the mice, with a mouse who then turns and shares it with the other mice because they're still looking out for each other. Exactly. They're still together. They're still a community. Absolutely. Very well said. Of course, Robin Hood's robbery is successful, but the uh, Prince John's bed and gets stuck in the pulley, so there's plenty of funny business with that. And it leads to a big action scene, a big chase, and everyone gets out except one of the kids. I believe it's Tagalong. It's Tagalong who is almost gets left behind, so Robin has to go back and save her. I think I think it's a her. And <laughs> it's he... usually listed as a her, but it it feels most of the time it feels like it could be any gender. <laughs> we don't we don't judge on this podcast. 
Absolutely <laughs> not. So, and that is when he gets stuck on the wrong side of the gate. There is more action. Again, I think this is Brun's score is really selling the peril here, as is the character acting of the animation. So here's a funny thing, because I've always felt like this drags. Really? That this scene just drags on too long. I've always felt like it's not a good scene. I've always kind of hated it. And I finally figured out why. It's because although the record has the scenes with the sheriff and Robin impersonating it, everything else is summed up by a line and a half from Roger Miller. So I am used to the jailbreak happens once they fool the sheriff and then Robin just casually meanders in and steals all the money. But it just gets it just gets wrapped up real quick on the record. There's no detail. There's no depth. There's no story. And of course, that's what I had heard long before I saw the movie. So this is a scene that oddly it feels really, really long to me. And this is why. That's funny. (laughs) What do you think of it, Mom? You also had the record first. Yeah, I did. I may have watched the movie more, though. Like I still was a little older, of course, when I first saw the movie, as you were. Christopher, but I may have watched it more times. See, that's the thing. I saw it once when I was 13. The next time I saw it was when I showed it to both of my sons. Exactly. So I saw it several times growing up after I'd listened to the record several times. So I had enough of both of them to to get used to the movie, I guess. So I didn't feel like it was too long. I've probably seen this movie three, four, maybe five times. That's funny because I've seen it. I feel like I've seen it countless times, although I probably also am counting the times the boys watched it and I watched it with them or heard it while they were watching it. But I'm pretty sure I did also watch it several times growing up. I can guarantee Isaac has seen this movie more than I have, but I have listened to it far more than he has. Right. So that's the thing. It's grooved in my head. And so when they stretch it out, it feels like somebody has put their finger on the album and slowed it down. It's funny, though, because when you were listening to the record, you know, just after we got to the the record player just recently, I had forgotten how the record sounded exactly. Like when we were listening to it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what they did to shorten things up or to explain things or whatever. But I couldn't have told you before I'd listened to it again. It had been too long. And I had basically written over it with the movie. Right. In my memory. See, and I always remember the record first. The end of the scene, of course, is Robin Hood. The the castle is burning Everything is going wrong. Robin Hood jumps off the castle and he appears to have drowned or been shot with an arrow because he goes into the moat. The air bubbles stop coming up. And then what does come up is a hat that has an arrow through it in such a way it would seem he must have been shot through the head. And Phil Harris really sells this scene. I think this is his best emotional moment in any of these Disney movies. Not that Aristocats really gets to compete. We get. A variation of what'll we do, but still very much the classic George Bruns sad song. What do we do? Obviously, there have been a billion animated movies where it seems like the main character has died and it's going to be a fake out. Even in prior Disney movies, we have seen this exact trick. But in this one, as we've discussed, the whole movie has been building up to it. 
And Phil Harris is selling it so well that even though you know, of course, Robin Hood isn't dead, even if you've never seen the movie before, you just know how Disney movies work. This one gets like kind of works. This one actually works because it's been set up. And it has been set up because this is the third time Robin goes into the water. Right. It's a callback to that earlier scene with the the sheriff and his men when Robin Hood and Little John running through the forest. We're calling back to that. And so you have to wonder this time. And that's the thing about this movie, because it does have that legitimate sadness to it. You wonder if it's actually going to be it. Now, from what I have read, from what I understand, there was never any question that Robin Hood was going to be killed. However, the original ending, he was going to be wounded so that he could no longer carry on against the sheriff on his own. That ending got killed by the studio who could not accept that we were going to have Robin Hood be damaged in the movie. I'm kind of torn. On the one hand, obviously, that would be pretty powerful emotional stuff of the kind we don't see in Disney movies. On the other hand, the ecstatic ending of this movie is that he and Little John and everyone else get away with it. They have completely drained Prince John's coffers. Richard shows up. All is well. It is that feeling of getting away with it, of, you know, this in this wonderful fantasy world, even though things have gotten so bad and so dark, we won. We have a truly triumphant, ecstatic ending. And this is a Disney movie that earns its happy ending. And finally, there is joy in Nottingham again. Right. And King Richard, who has one line performed by Peter Ustinov, is a lame dork who makes a dad joke, which is, of course, a callback as well. Yes. Trigger and Nutsy fire one last arrow. I got to say, though, it is, again, a fun game to play when you finally get to hear Prince John is to say, do you know who that voice is? You've heard him before. You mean King Richard? Or King Richard, rather. Yeah, King Richard, because people don't recognize when you hear King Richard, his voice in that one, people who don't know can't guess that it's the same voice actor who's done Prince John. And again, that is a, a, a nod to Peter Ustinov's ability, but it fooled you when you were a kid. So, oh, no doubt. There you go. And also Prince John, Sir Hiss and the Sheriff of Nottingham, who I could use maybe one more parting line from those guys, but they have the perfect punishment, not because they're doing hard labor, but because they are just stuck with each other. Correct. Yeah. They will only have each other forever. And that is truly hell for these guys. <laughs> <laughs> and an arrow flies into the wedding carriage because, of course, Robin Hood made Mary and are married. And I love Roger Miller's smirking final line. Well, folks, that's the way it really happened. <laughs> yep, it is. It is a wonderful and uh, followed by a cheap musical sting. Of Udalale. <laughs> That's a Disney law. You got to have that. I think they've all had that since Snow White. Yep. Or the vast majority. It is a remarkable film in, in so many ways. There is so much good in it. There's so much great storytelling. Um, it really can stand up pretty much, even without the images. Do you have a favorite scene? No, I do not. I do not have a favorite scene. If I had to pick... It would almost have to be a scene with Prince John and Hiss, and it would probably be uh, the opening in the carriage, that first scene with the, with the robbery, 
which again, the movie version always feels uncomfortably long to me because the record doesn't extend that far out. Frankly, I I just prefer the pacing, the the rapid movement of the story on the album version. Uh, just gotta say, <clears throat> but but to me, in my head, this is such a complete story in a way that a lot of the Disney movies, even Sword in the Stone, is not as complete a story in my opinion as this is, where everything flows. And and one of the things I love about this movie and its ending is that the triumphant victory isn't what you see in most Robin Hood films or TV shows when Richard returns, deus ex machina, everything is made whole and right and perfect and everything is good and, and great to go. This one, the hope returns because Robin Hood succeeded. He got everybody out of the castle. He got the money. He has ultimately humiliated so that by the time Richard returns, it's basically the cherry on the cake. Yes, I agree. This is normally where we do sequels, spinoffs, remakes, rides and reboots. This has been our longest recording ever by far. So I'm going to ask that we keep it short. Fortunately, there's not much to spin off. The songs have been covered a lot of times. I do have to call out something I somehow didn't know. The hamster dance meme, one of the earliest viral videos, which is a very annoying hamster with a song that's like, I did not realize that is whistle stop sped up and pitch shifted and rendered unlistenable. That is a horrible legacy for this good movie. And and Roger Miller's estate did finally get paid for it. So, you know. Oh, good. Oh, good for that. Yeah. There is another movie, though, that we ought to mention that was inspired by this. A Disney movie that was inspired by this. Oh, yes, I do know this. After the passing of Brian Bedford, Byron Howard wrote... The voice of Robin Hood passed away. Robin Hood is my inspiration for creating Zootopia. That's right. Robin Hood was Byron Howard's favorite film growing up, and it was a major influence on Zootopia, which is not as good of a movie, in my opinion. We'll get to it. But yes, this is one of those moments where Disney inspired Disney. Robin Hood came out in uh, 1973. Byron Howard, who made Zootopia, and, and I... I want to bring this up because I I think it's important. Byron Howard grew up with this movie. He was born in 1968. He was five when it came out. This is an example of Disney inspiring Disney because the kids who grew up with Disney are Disney kids. And so when he wanted to make a movie, he wanted to make a Disney movie like Robin Hood. And Byron Howard, uh, also also the co-director of uh, Bolt and Tangled and... I thought he I think he's involved with the Wreck-It Ralph movies, but yes, he's he's done a lot. Very important figure in the modern Disney era. But this movie was uh, in some ways, you could say, an animated remake of a live action Robin Hood film, which mom watched. Yep. The story of Robin Hood and his Merry Men from 1952. This was the second live action movie that the Disney Studios ever made after Treasure Island. It is actually quite funny. It's on Disney Plus. I don't know that there's a lot of uh, influences you can say that they took for the animated movie out of this, although it does start with a book and it does start with Alan Adele singing just like the animated one. 
You mentioned that Maid Marian is usually the damsel in distress. She's not so much in this one. She is basically ends up taking message a message to, you know, Robin Hood in the forest. It does start, though, amusingly, you know, as they're getting ready to leave for the crusade. So um, with Robin and Marian as children, younger, you know, people playing, goofing off, whatever. So you get a bit of their relationship at the beginning. Anyway, I thought it was quite a funny movie and I would recommend that one (laughs) if anybody wants to see. I had never seen it before, which kind of surprised me because it is rather good and it isn't just boring or anything. I'm sure you could have said a lot more if we hadn't stolen all of your time. Yeah, trying to limit myself. So it's interesting to me, though, that there are not more spinoffs or things related to this. It seems kind of odd. Apparently they're doing a live action remake. Supposedly it's been announced. But again, it's one of those that's been announced, but I don't know that it's gone anywhere. This one's been announced recently enough and got enough actual coverage. I believe it. It's also going straight to Disney Plus, which is how you know they have real confidence in it. They're dumping it onto the streaming service. That thing will be unwatchable. I think it's odd that there aren't more spinoffs, that there weren't anything at the time, because this movie was the biggest box office that Disney had had. Yeah. And that there's nothing really in the parks except for some characters you can meet. Right. And yet, nothing. It did not get critical acclaim. It did not get critical praise, by and large. But it made money. And that's what I think is crazy, is at a time when Disney, corporate Disney was all about, show me those dollars, this movie did. And then they ignored it. Dad's already sort of given his thesis statement on the movie and whether or not he'd recommend it. I'll go ahead and give mine. Get the record. Listen to it the way God (laughs) and Uncle Walt intended. Okay, understandable. (laughs) The, The way it was meant to be seen. Not at all. Exactly. Exactly. Not at all. Uh, Unsurprisingly, I would also recommend this movie. I I second everything Dad said. It has the real emotional core of Dumbo, but it also has the humor of Sword in the Stone, and it has the animation of a couple dozen Disney movies. (laughs) (laughs) But it really is terrific. It was a great rewatch, even though I already knew I liked this movie. I I I love this movie. I, it's it's terrific. It's one of Disney's best. I, of course, would also recommend this movie. It's very good. Again, ditto, ditto, ditto. Uh, I wrote down earlier that my only complaint about it is all the recycled animation. But I mean, we talked about that earlier. And if you're not watching it with all the others, I think it's less noticeable. And the story really does cover it. The story, the music. It's all so good that you don't notice the recycled animation as much. The recycled animation does bother me a little bit and the crappy backgrounds. I wish it looked better. You know, if this movie had had the budget, even of like 101 Dalmatians, it would be great to see what these animators did with it. But that is not the world we live in. And I'm also not going to ask whether or not we'd show this movie to a child because we've all (laughs) talked extensively about watching it as kids or I guess listening to the records. So I'm going to skip that with your guys' permission. I do want to say if you somehow need to hear yet more about Robin Hood or any Disney movie, <laughs> do email the mailbag at memommouse at gmail.com. That's M-E-M-O-M-M-O-U-S-E at gmail.com. 
I do want to say thank you, Dad, for coming on the show, for clearly doing the research. Not that you needed to, because, of course, you and I love talking about movies as much <laughs> as Mom and I love talking about movies. And we all love talking about movies together, although normally we're talking about non-Disney movies. <laughs> shall we segue to Breaking Bad? No, we shall not. I, I really appreciate you being on the show, and I've, I've really enjoyed this tremendously. It feels weird to thank you the way I would normally thank a podcast guest because you are my father. Thank you for giving me the gift of life. And thank you for not having to re reference some joke your weird dad told while you're talking to your mom about the movie. <laughs> so that will do it for me, mom, dad, and the mouse. If you like the show, please come back next time for The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. What do you think of that movie, mom? It's, it's a good movie. I like it. It's fun. Oh, bother. Yes, the, the last hurrah of Sterling Holloway. Tune in next time. Until then, I'm me. I'm Mom. And I'm the special guest star! <laughs> Stop what I told you to say it. It all started with the mouse! <laughs>